What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Chapter 39 of David Copperfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ty Kynes. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter 39. Wickfield and Heap. My aunt, beginning, I imagine, to be made seriously uncomfortable by my prolonged dejection, made a pretence of being anxious that I should go to Dover, to see that all was working well at the cottage which was let, and to conclude an agreement with the same tenant for a longer term of occupation. Janet was drafted into the service of Mrs. Strong, where I saw her every day. She had been undecided on leaving Dover whether or no to give the finishing touch to that renunciation of mankind in which she had been educated by marrying a pilot, but she decided against that venture. Not so much for the sake of principle, I believe, as because she happened not to like him. Although it required an effort to leave Miss Mills, I fell rather willingly into my aunt's pretence as a means of enabling me to pass a few tranquil hours with Agnes. I consulted the good doctor relative to an absence of three days, and the doctor, wishing me to take that relaxation—he wished me to take more, but my energy could not bear it—I made up my mind to go. As to the commons, I had no great occasion to be particular about my duties in that quarter. To say the truth, we were getting on in no very good order among the tip-top proctors, and were rapidly sliding down to but a doubtful position. The business had been indifferent under Mr. Jorkins before Mr. Spenlow's time, and although it had been quickened by the infusion of new blood and by the display which Mr. Spenlow made, still it was not established on a sufficiently strong basis to bear, without being shaken, such a blow as the sudden loss of its active manager. It fell off very much. Mr. Jorkins, notwithstanding his reputation in the firm, was an easy-going and capable sort of man, whose reputation out of doors was not calculated to back it up. I was turned over to him now, and when I saw him take his snuff and let the business go, I regretted my aunt's thousand pounds more than ever. But this was not the worst of it. There were a number of hangers-on and outsiders about the commons, who, without being proctors themselves, dabbled in common-form business, and got it done by real proctors who lent their names in consideration of a share in the spoil. And there were a good many of these, too. As our house now wanted business on any terms, we joined this noble band, and threw out lures to the hangers-on and outsiders to bring their business to us. Marriage licences and small probates were what we all looked for, and what paid us best, and the competition for these ran very high indeed. Kidnappers and inveiglers were planted in all the avenues and entrances to the commons, with instructions to do their utmost to cut off all persons in mourning, and all gentlemen with anything bashful in their appearance, and entice them to the offices in which their respective employers were interested. Which instructions were so well observed that I myself, before I was known by sight, was twice hustled into the premises of our principal opponent. The conflicting interests of these touting gentlemen being of a nature to irritate their feelings, personal collisions took place, and the commons was even scandalised by our principal inveigler, who had formerly been in the wine trade and afterwards in the sworn brokery line, walking about for some days with a black eye. Any one of these scouts used to think nothing of politely assisting an old lady in black out of a vehicle, killing any proctor whom she inquired for, representing his employer as the lawful successor and representative of that proctor, and bearing the old lady off, sometimes greatly affected, to his employer's office. 
many captives were brought to me in this way as to marriage licences the competition rose to such a pitch that a shy gentleman in want of one had nothing to do but submit himself to the first inveigler or be fought for and become the prey of the strongest one of our clerks who was an outsider used in the height of this contest to sit with his hat on that he might be ready to rush out and swear before a surrogate any victim who was brought in the system of inveigling continues i believe to this day the last time i was in the commons a civil able-bodied person in a white apron pounced out upon me from a doorway and whispering the word marriage license in my ear was with great difficulty prevented from taking me up in his arms and lifting me into a proctor's from this digression let me proceed to dover i found everything in a satisfactory state at the cottage and was able to gratify my aunt exceedingly by reporting that the tenant inherited her feud and waged incessant war against donkeys having settled the little business i had to transact there and slept there one night i walked on to canterbury early in the morning it was now winter again and the fresh cold windy day and the sweeping downland brightened up my hopes a little coming into canterbury i loitered through the old streets with a sober pleasure that calmed my spirits and eased my heart there were the old signs the old names over the shops the old people serving in them it appeared so long since i had been a schoolboy there that i wondered the place was so little changed until i reflected how little i was changed myself strange to say that quiet influence which was inseparable in my mind from agnes seemed to pervade even the city where she dwelt the venerable cathedral towers and the old jackdaws and rooks whose airy voices made them more retired than perfect silence would have done the battered gateways one stuck full with statues long thrown down and crumbled away like the reverential pilgrims who had gazed upon them the still nooks where the ivied growth of centuries crept over gabled ends and ruined walls the ancient houses the pastoral landscape of field orchard and garden everywhere on everything i felt the same serener air the same calm thoughtful softening spirit arrived at mr wickfield's house i found in the little lower room on the ground floor where uriah heep had been of old accustomed to sit mr micawber plying his pen with great assiduity he was dressed in a legal-looking suit of black and loomed burly and large in that small office mr micawber was extremely glad to see me but a little confused too he would have conducted me immediately into the presence of uriah but i declined i know the house of old you recollect said i and will find my way upstairs how do you like the law mr micawber my dear copperfield he replied to a man possessed of the higher imaginative powers the objection to legal studies is the amount of detail which they involve even in our professional correspondence said mr micawber glancing at some letters he was writing the mind is not at liberty to soar to any exalted form of expression still it is a great pursuit a great pursuit he then told me that he had become the tenant of uriah heep's old house and that mrs micawber would be delighted to receive me once more under her own roof it is humble said mr micawber to quote a favourite expression of my friend heep uh, but it may prove the stepping-stone to more ambitious domiciliary accommodation i asked him whether he had reason so far to be satisfied with his friend heep's treatment of him he got up to ascertain if the door were closed shut before he replied in a lower voice my dear copperfield a man who labours under the pressure of pecuniary embarrassments is with a generality of people 
not a disadvantage that disadvantage is not diminished when that pressure necessitates the drawing of stipendary emoluments before those emoluments are strictly due and payable all i can say is that my friend heep has responded to appeals to which i need not more particularly refer in a manner calculated to redound equally to the honour of his head and of his heart i should not have supposed him to be very free with his money either i observed oh, pardon me said mr micawber with an air of constraint i speak of my friend heep as i have experience i am glad your experience is so favourable i returned you are very obliging my dear copperfield said mr micawber and hummed a tune do you see much of mr wickfield i asked to change the subject not much said mr micawber slightingly uh, mr wickfield is i dare say a man of very excellent intentions but he is in short he is obsolete i am afraid his partner seeks to make him so said i my dear copperfield returned mr micawber after some uneasy evolutions on a stool allow me to offer a remark i am here in a capacity of confidence i am here in a position of trust the discussion of some topics even with mrs micawber herself so long the partner of my various vicissitudes and a woman of a remarkable lucidity of intellect is i am led to consider incompatible with the functions now devolving on me i would therefore take the liberty of suggesting that in our friendly intercourse which i trust will never be disturbed we draw a line on one side of this line said mr micawber representing it on the desk with the office ruler is the whole range of the human intellect with a trifling exception on the other is that exception that is to say the affairs of messrs wickfield and heep with all belonging and appertaining thereunto i trust i give no offence to the companion of my youth in submitting this proposition to his cooler judgment though i saw an uneasy change in mr micawber which sat tightly on him as if his new duties were a misfit i felt i had no right to be offended my telling him so appeared to relieve him and he shook hands with me i am charmed copperfield said mr micawber let me assure you with miss wickfield she is a very superior young lady of very remarkable attractions graces and virtues upon my honour said mr micawber indefinitely kissing his hand and bowing with his genteelest air i do homage to miss wickfield ahem i am glad of that at least said i if you had not assured us my dear copperfield on the occasion of that agreeable afternoon we had the happiness of passing with you oh, that d was your favourite letter said mr micawber i should unquestionably have supposed that a had been so we have all some experience of a feeling that comes over us occasionally of what we are saying and doing having been said and done before in a remote time of our having been surrounded dim ages ago by the same faces objects and circumstances of our knowing perfectly what will be said next as if we suddenly remembered it i never had this mysterious impression more strongly in my life than before he uttered those words i took my leave of mr micawber for the time charging him with my best remembrances to all at home as i left him resuming his stool and his pen and rolling his head in his stock to get it into easier writing order i clearly perceived that there was something interposed between him and me since he had come into his new functions which prevented our getting at each other as we used to do and quite altered the character of our intercourse there was no one in the quaint old drawing-room though it presented tokens of mrs heep's whereabouts i looked into the room still belonging to agnes and saw her sitting by the fire at a pretty old-fashioned desk she had writing 
My darkening the light made her look up. What a pleasure to be the cause of that bright change in her attentive face, and the object of that sweet regard and welcome. Ah, Agnes, said I, when we were sitting together side by side, I have missed you so much lately. Indeed, she replied, again and so soon. I shook my head. I don't know how it is, Agnes. I seem to want some faculty of mind that I ought to have. You were so much in the habit of thinking for me in the happy old days here, and I came so naturally to you for counsel and support, that I really think I have missed acquiring it. And what is it? said Agnes cheerfully. I don't know what to call it, I replied. I think I am earnest and persevering. I am sure of it, said Agnes. And patient, Agnes? I inquired with a little hesitation. Yes, returned Agnes, laughing. Pretty well. And yet, said I, I get so miserable and worried, and am so unsteady and irresolute in my power of assuring myself, uh, that I know I must want, shall I call it, reliance of some kind. Call it so, if you will, said Agnes. Well, I returned, see here, you come to London, I rely on you, and I have an object and a course at once. I am driven out of it, I come here, and in a moment I feel an altered person. The circumstances that distress me are not changed, since I came into this room, but an influence comes over me in that short interval that alters me, oh, how much for the better. What is it? What is your secret, Agnes? Her head was bent down, looking at the fire. It's the old story, said I. Don't laugh when I say it was always the same in little things as it is in greater ones. My old troubles were nonsense, and now they are serious. But whenever I have gone away from my adopted sister, Agnes looked up with such a heavenly face, and gave me her hand, which I kissed. Whenever I have not had you, Agnes, to advise and approve in the beginning, I have seemed to go wild and to get into all sorts of difficulty. When I have come to you at last, as I have always done, I have come to peace and happiness. I come home now, like a tired traveller, and find such a blessed sense of rest. I felt so deeply what I said, it affected me so sincerely, that my voice failed, and I covered my face with my hand, and broke into tears. I write the truth, whatever contradictions and inconsistencies there were within me, and there are within so many of us, whatever might have been so different, and so much better, whatever I had done, in which I had perversely wandered away from the voice of my own heart, I knew nothing of. I only knew that I was fervently in earnest, and I felt the rest and peace of having Agnes near me. In her placid sisterly manner, with her beaming eyes, with her tender voice, and with that sweet composure which had long ago made the house that held her quite a sacred place to me, she soon won me from this weakness, and led me on to tell all that had happened since our last meeting. "'And there is not another word to tell, Agnes,' said I, when I had made an end of my confidence. "'And now my reliance is on you.' But it must not be on me, Trotwood, returned Agnes with a pleasant smile. It must be on someone else. On Dora, said I. Assuredly. Why, I have not mentioned Agnes, said I, a little embarrassed. That Dora is rather difficult to, I would not for the world say, to rely upon, because she is the soul of purity and truth, but rather difficult to, I hardly know how to express it, really, Agnes. She is a timid little thing, and easily disturbed and frightened. Some time ago, before her father's death, when I thought it right to mention to her, but I'll tell you, if you will bear with me, how it was. Accordingly, I told Agnes about my declaration of poverty, about the cookery book, the housekeeping accounts, and all the rest of it. Oh, Trotwood, she remonstrated with a smile, just your old headlong way. 
you might have been in earnest in striving to get on in the world without being so very sudden with a timid loving inexperienced girl poor dora i never heard such sweet forbearing kindness expressed in a voice as she expressed in making this reply it was as if i had seen her admiringly and tenderly embracing dora and tacitly reproving me by her considerate protection for my hot haste in fluttering that little heart it was as if i had seen dora in all her fascinating artlessness caressing agnes and thanking her and coaxingly appealing against me and loving me with all her childish innocence i felt so grateful to agnes and admired her so i saw those two together in a bright perspective such well-associated friends each adorning the other so much what ought i to do then agnes i inquired after looking at the fire a little while what would it be right to do i think said agnes that the honourable course to take would be to write to those two ladies don't you think that any secret course is an unworthy one yes if you think so said i i am poorly qualified to judge of such matters replied agnes with a modest hesitation but i certainly feel in short i feel that your being secret and clandestine is not being like yourself like myself in the too high opinion you have of me agnes i am afraid said i like yourself in the candour of your nature she returned and therefore i would write to those two ladies would relate as plainly and as openly as possible all that has taken place and i would ask their permission to visit sometimes at their house considering that you are young and striving for a place in life i think it would be well to say that you would readily abide by any conditions they might impose upon you i would entreat them not to dismiss your request without a reference to dora and to discuss it with her when they should think the time suitable i would not be too vehement said agnes gently or propose too much i would trust to my fidelity and perseverance and to dora but if they were to frighten dora again agnes by speaking to her said i and if dora were to cry and say nothing about me is that likely inquired agnes with the same sweet consideration in her face god bless her she is as easily scared as a bird said i it might be or if the two miss spenlows elderly ladies of that sort are odd characters sometimes should not be likely persons to address in that way i don't think trotwood returned agnes raising her soft eyes to mine i would consider that perhaps it would be better only to consider whether it is right to do this and if it is to do it i had no longer any doubt on the subject with a lightened heart though with a profound sense of the weighty importance of my task i devoted the whole afternoon to the composition of the draft of this letter for which great purpose agnes relinquished her desk to me but first i went downstairs to see mr wickfield and uriah heep i found uriah in possession of a new plaster-smelling office built out in the garden looking extraordinarily mean in the midst of a quantity of books and papers he received me in his usual fawning way and pretended not to have heard of my arrival from mr micawber the pretence i took the liberty of disbelieving he accompanied me into mr wickfield's room which was the shadow of its former self having been divested of a variety of conveniences for the accommodation of the new partner and stood before the fire warming his back and shaving his chin with his bony hand while mr wickfield and i exchanged greetings you stay with us trotwood while you remain in canterbury said mr wickfield not without a glance at uriah for his approval is there room for me said i i am sure master copperfield i should say mister but the other comes so natural said uriah i would turn out of your old room with pleasure if it would be agreeable oh no no 
said Mr. Wickfield. Why should you be inconvenienced? There's another room. There's another room. Oh, but you now, returned Uriah with a grin, already would be delighted. To cut the matter short, I said I would have the other room or none at all. So it was settled that I should have the other room, and, taking my leave of the firm until dinner, I went upstairs again. I had hoped to have no other companion than Agnes, but Mrs. Heep had asked permission to bring herself and her knitting near the fire in that room, on pretence of its having an aspect more favourable for her rheumatics, as the wind was then, than the drawing-room or dining-parlour. Though I could almost have consigned her to the mercies of the wind on the topmost pinnacle of the cathedral without remorse, I made a virtue of necessity, and gave her a friendly salutation. "'I am humbly thankful to you, sir,' said Mrs. Heep, in acknowledgment of my inquiries concerning her health. "'But I'm only pretty well. I haven't much to boast of. If I could see my Uriah well settled in life, I couldn't expect much more, I think. How do you think my Uri looking, sir?' I thought him looking as villainous as ever, and I replied that I saw no change in him. "'Oh, don't you think he's changed?' said Mrs. Heep. "'There I must humbly beg leave to differ from you. Don't you see a thinness in him?' "'Not more than usual,' I replied. "'Don't you, though?' said Mrs. Heep. "'But you don't take notice of him with a mother's eye.' His mother's eye was an evil eye to the rest of the world, I thought, as it met mine, however so affectionate to him and i believe she and her son were devoted to one another it passed me and went on to agnes don't you see a wasting and a wearing in a miss wickfield inquired mrs heep no said agnes quietly pursuing the work on which she was engaged you are too solicitous about him he is very well mrs heep with a prodigious sniff resumed her knitting she never left off, or left us for a moment. I had arrived early in the day, and we had still three or four hours before dinner, but she sat there, plying her knitting-needles as monotonously as an hourglass might have poured out its sands. She sat on one side of the fire, I sat at the desk in front of it, a little beyond me on the other side sat Agnes. Whensoever, slowly pondering over my letter, I lifted up my eyes, and, meeting the thoughtful face of Agnes, saw it clear, and beam encouragement upon me, with its own angelic expression, I was conscious presently of the evil eye passing me, and going on to her, and coming back to me again, and dropping furtively upon the knitting. What the knitting was I don't know, not being learned in that art, but it looked like a net, and as she worked away with those Chinese chopsticks of knitting-needles, she showed in the firelight like an ill-looking enchantress, balked as yet by the radiant goodness opposite, but getting ready for a cast of her net by and by. At dinner she maintained her watch, with the same unwinking eyes. After dinner her son took his turn, and when Mr. Wickfield, himself and I, were alone together, leered at me, and writhed until I could hardly bear it. In the drawing-room there was the mother knitting and watching again. All the time that Agnes sang and played, the mother sat at the piano. Once she asked for a particular ballad, which she said her Yuri, who was yawning in a great chair, doted on and at intervals she looked round at him, and reported to Agnes that he was in raptures with the music. But she hardly ever spoke, I question if she ever did, without making some mention of him. It was evident to me that this was the duty assigned to her. This lasted until bedtime. To have seen the mother and son, like two great bats hanging over the whole house, and darkening it with their ugly forms, made me so uncomfortable that I would rather have remained downstairs, knitting and all, than gone to bed. I hardly got any sleep. 
Next day the knitting and watching began again, and lasted all day. I had not an opportunity of speaking to Agnes for ten minutes. I could barely show her my letter. I proposed to her to walk out with me, but Mrs. Heep, repeatedly complaining that she was worse, Agnes charitably remained within, to bear her company. Towards the twilight I went out by myself, musing on what I ought to do, and whether I was justified on withholding from Agnes any longer what Uriah Heep had told me in London, for that began to trouble me again very much. I had not walked out far enough to be quite clear of the town, upon the Ramsgate Road, where there was a good path, when I was hailed through the dust by someone behind me. The shambling figure and the scanty greatcoat were not to be mistaken. I stopped, and Uriah Heep came up. "'Well,' said I. "'How fast you walk!' he said. "'My legs are pretty long, but you've given them quite a job.' "'Where are you going?' said I. "'I'm going with you, Master Copperfield, if you'll allow me the pleasure of a walk with an old acquaintance.' Saying this with a jerk of his body, which might have been either propitiatory or derisive, he fell into step beside me. "'Uriah,' said I, as civilly as I could after a silence, "'Master Copperfield,' said Uriah, "'to tell you the truth, at which you will not be offended, I came out to walk alone, because I have had so much company.' He looked at me sideways, and said with his hardest grin, "'You mean mother?' "'Why, yes, I do,' said I. "'Ah, but you know we are so very amble,' he returned. "'And having such a knowledge of our own ambleness, we must really take care that we are not pushed to the wall by them as isn't amble. Old stratagems are fair in love, sir.' Raising his great hands until they touched his chin, he rubbed them softly and softly chuckled, looking as like a malevolent baboon, I thought, as any human could. "'You see,' he said, still hugging himself in that unpleasant way and shaking his head at me, "'you are quite a dangerous rival, Master Copperfield.' You always was, you know. Do you set a watch upon Miss Wickfield, and make her home no home because of me? said I. Oh, Master Copperfield, those are very harsh words, he replied. Put my meaning into any words you like, said I. You know what it is, Uriah, as well as I do. Oh, no, you must put it into words, he said. Oh, really, I couldn't myself. "'Do you suppose,' said I, constraining myself to be very temperate and quiet with him on account of Agnes, "'that I regard Miss Wickfield otherwise than as a very dear sister?' "'Well, Master Copperfield,' he replied, "'you perceive I am not bound to answer that question. "'You may not, you know, but then, you see, you may.' "'Anything equal to the low cunning of his visage, "'and of his shadowless eyes without the ghost of an eyelash, I never saw.' "'Come, then,' said I, for the sake of Miss Wickfield. "'My Agnes!' he exclaimed, with a sickly angular contortion of himself. "'Would you be so good as to call her Agnes, Master Copperfield?' "'For the sake of Agnes Wickfield. Heaven bless her!' "'Thank you for that blessing, Master Copperfield,' he interposed. "'I will tell you what I should, under any other circumstances, as soon have thought of telling to Jack Ketch.' "'To who, sir?' said Uriah, stretching out his neck and shading his ear with his hand. "'To the hangman,' I returned, the most unlikely person I could think of, though his own face had suggested the illusion quite as a natural sequence. I am engaged to another young lady. I hope that contents you.' "'Upon your soul,' said Uriah. I was about indignantly to give my assertion the confirmation he required, when he caught hold of my hand and gave it a squeeze. "'Oh, Master Copperfield,' 
he said, if you had only the condescension to return my confidence when I poured out the fullness of my art, the night I put you so much out of the way by sleeping before your sitting-room fire, I never should have doubted you. As it is, I'm sure I'll take off mother directly, and only too happy. I know you'll excuse the precautions of affection, won't you? What's a pity, Master Copperfield, that you didn't condescend to return my confidence? I'm sure I gave you every opportunity. But you never have condescended to me as much as I could have wished. I know you have never liked me as I liked you. All this time he was squeezing my hand with his damp, fishy fingers, while I made every effort I decently could to get it away. But I was quite unsuccessful. He drew it under the sleeve of his mulberry-coloured greatcoat, and I walked on, almost upon compulsion, arm in arm with him. I shall return, said Uriah, by and by wheeling me face about towards the town, on which the early moon was now shining, silvering the distant windows. Before we leave the subject, you ought to understand, said I, breaking a pretty long silence, that I believe Agnes Wickfield to be as far above you and as far removed from all your aspirations as that moon herself. Peaceful, ain't she? said Uriah. Very. Now confess, Master Copperfield, that you haven't liked me quite as I have liked you. All along you've thought me too humble now, I shouldn't wonder. I am not fond of professions of humility, I returned, or professions of anything else. There now, said Uriah, looking flabby and lead-coloured in the moonlight, didn't I know it? But how little you think of the rightful humbleness of a person in my situation, Master Copperfield. Father and me was both brought up at a foundation school for boys, and mother, she was likewise brought up at a public sort of charitable establishment. They thought us all a deal of humbleness, not much else that I know of, from morning till night. We was to be humble to this person, and humble to that, and to pull off our caps here, and to make bows there, and always to know our place, and abase ourselves before our betters. And we had such a lots of betters. Father got the monitor medal by being humble. So did I. Father got made a sexton by being humble. He had the character among the gentlefolks of being such a well-behaved man, that they were determined to bring him in. Be humble, Uriah says father to me, and you'll get on. It was what was always being dinned into you and me at school. It's what goes down best. Be humble, says father, and you'll do. And really, it ain't done bad. It was the first time it had ever occurred to me that this detestable cant of false humility might have originated out of the Heap family. I had seen the harvest, but had never thought of the seed. When I was quite a young boy, said Uriah. I got to know what humbleness did, and I took to it. I ate humble pie with an appetite. I stopped at the humble point of my learning, and says I, Old hard. When you offered to teach me Latin, I knew better. People like to be above you, says father. Keep yourself down. I am very humble to the present moment, Master Copperfield, but I've got a little power. As he said all this, I knew, as I saw his face in the moonlight, that I might understand he was resolved to recompense himself by using his power. I had never doubted his meanness, his craft and malice, but I fully comprehended now, for the first time, what a base, unrelenting and revengeful spirit must have been engendered by this early and this long suppression. His account of himself was so far attended with an agreeable result, that it led to his withdrawing his hand, in order that he might have another hug of himself under the chin. Once apart from him, I was determined to keep apart, and we walked back side by side, saying very little more by the way. 
whether his spirits were elevated by the communication i had made to him or by his having indulged in this retrospect i don't know but they were raised by some influence he talked more at dinner than was usual with him asked his mother off duty from the moment of our re-entering the house whether he was not growing too old for a bachelor and once looked at agnes so that i would have given all i had for leave to knock him down when we three males were left alone after dinner he got into a more adventurous state he had taken little or no wine and i presume it was the mere insolence of triumph that was upon him flushed perhaps by the temptation my presence furnished to its exhibition i had observed yesterday that he tried to entice mr wickfield to drink and interpreting the look which agnes had given me as she went out had limited myself to one glass and then proposed that we should follow her i would have done so again to-day but uriah was too quick for me we seldom see our present visitor sir he said addressing mr wickfield sitting such a contrast to him at the end of the table and i should propose to give him welcome in another glass or two of wine if you have no objections mr copperfield your health and happiness i was obliged to make a show of taking the hand he stretched across to me and then with very different emotions i took the hand of the broken gentleman his partner come fellow partner said uriah if i may take the liberty now suppose you give us something of another appropriate to copperfield i pass over mr wickfield's proposing my aunt his proposing mr dick his proposing doctor's commons his proposing uriah his drinking everything twice his consciousness of his own weakness the ineffectual effort that he made against it the struggle between his shame in uriah's deportment and his desire to conciliate him the manifest exultation with which uriah twisted and turned and held him up before me it made me sick at heart to see and my hand recoils from writing it come fellow partner said uriah at last i'll give you another one and i humbly ask for bumpers seeing i intend to make it the divinest of her sex her father had his empty glass in his hand i saw him set it down look at the picture she was so like put his hand to his forehead and shrink back in his elbow chair i am an humble individual to give you a wealth proceeded uriah but i admire adora no physical pain that her father's grey head could have borne i think could have been more terrible to me than the mental endurance i saw compressed now within both his hands agnes said uriah either not regarding him or not knowing what the nature of his action was agnes wickfield is i am safe to say the divinest of her sex may i speak out among friends to be her father is a proud distinction but to be her husband spare me from ever hearing again such a cry as that with which her father rose up from the table what's the matter said uriah turning of a deadly colour you are not gone mad after all mr wickfield i hope if i say of an ambition to make your agnes my agnes i have as good a right to do it as another man i have a better right to do it than any other man i had my arms around mr wickfield imploring him by everything that i could think of oftenest of all by his love for agnes to calm himself a little he was mad for the moment tearing out his hair beating his head trying to force me from him and to force himself from me not answering a word not looking at or seeing any one blindly striving for he knew not what his face all staring and distorted a frightful spectacle 
i conjured him incoherently but in the most impassioned manner not to abandon himself to this wildness but to hear me i besought him to think of agnes to connect me with agnes to recollect how agnes and i had grown up together how i honoured her and loved her how she was his pride and joy i tried to bring her idea before him in any form i even reproached him with not having firmness to spare her the knowledge of a scene such as this i may have effected something or his wildness may have spent itself but by degrees he struggled less and began to look at me strangely at first then with recognition in his eyes at length he said i know trotwood my darling child and you i know but look at him he pointed to uriah pale and glowering in the corner evidently very much out in his calculations and taken by surprise look at my torturer he replied before him i have step by step abandoned name and reputation peace and quiet house and home i have kept your name and reputation for you and your peace and quiet and your house and home too said uriah with a sulky hurried defeated air of compromise don't be foolish mr wickfield if i have gone a little beyond what you were prepared for i can go back i suppose there's no harm done i looked for single motives in every one said mr wickfield and i was satisfied i had bound him to me by motives of interest but see what he is oh see what he is you had better stop him copperfield if you can cried uriah with his long forefinger pointing towards me he'll say something presently mind you he'll be sorry to have said afterwards and you'll be sorry to have heard i'd say anything cried mr wickfield with a desperate air why should i not be in all the world's power if i am in yours mind i tell you said uriah continuing to warn me if you don't stop his mouth you're not his friend why should you not be in all the world's power mr wickfield because you have got a daughter you and me know what we know don't we let sleeping dogs lie who wants to rouse them i don't can't you see i am as humble as i can be i'll tell you if i've gone too far i'm sorry what would you have sir oh trotwood trotwood exclaimed mr wickfield wringing his hands what have i come down to be since i first saw you in this house i was on my downward way then but the dreary dreary road i have traversed since weak indulgence has ruined me indulgence in remembrance and indulgence in forgetfulness my natural grief for my child's mother turned to disease my natural love for my child turned to disease i have infected everything i have touched i have brought misery on what i dearly love i know you know i thought it possible that i could truly love one creature in the world and not love the rest i thought it possible that i could truly mourn for one creature gone out of the world and not have some part in the grief of all who mourned thus the lessons of my life have been perverted i have preyed on my own morbid coward heart and it has preyed on me sordid in my grief sordid in my love sordid in my miserable escape from the darker side of both oh see the ruin i am and hate me shun me he dropped into a chair and weakly sobbed the excitement into which he had been roused was leaving him uriah came out of his corner i don't know all i have done in my fatuity said mr wickfield putting out his hands as if to deprecate my condemnation he knows best meaning uriah heep for he has always been at my elbow whispering me you see the millstone that he is around my neck you find him in my house you find him in my business you heard him but a little time ago what need have i to say more you haven't need to say so much nor half so much nor anything at all observed uriah half defiant and half fawning you wouldn't have tuck it up so if it hadn't been for the wine you'll think better of it to-morrow sir if i have said too much or more than i meant what of it i haven't stood by it 
The door opened, and Agnes, gliding in, without a vestige of colour in her face, put her arm round his neck, and steadily said, "'Papa, you are not well. Come with me.' He laid his head upon her shoulder, as if he were oppressed with heavy shame, and went out with her. Her eyes met mine but for an instant, yet I saw how much she knew of what had passed. "'I didn't expect he'd cut up so rough, Master Copperfield,' said Uriah. "'But it's nothing. I'll be friends with him to-morrow. It's for his good. I'm humbly anxious for his good.' I gave him no answer, and went upstairs to the quiet room where Agnes had so often sat beside me at my books. Nobody came near me until late at night. I took up a book and tried to read. I heard the clock strike twelve, and was still reading, without knowing what I read, when Agnes touched me. "'You will be going early in the morning, Trotwood?' Let us say good-bye now. She had been weeping, but her face then was so calm and beautiful. Heaven bless you, she said, giving me her hand. Dearest Agnes, I returned, I see you ask me not to speak of to-night, but is there nothing to be done? There is God to trust in, she replied. Can I do nothing, I who come to you with my poor sorrows? And make mine so much lighter, she replied. Dear Trotwood, no. "'Dear Agnes,' said I, "'it is presumptuous for me, who am so poor in all in which you are so rich, goodness, resolution, all noble qualities, to doubt or direct you. But you know how much I love you, and how much I owe you. You will never sacrifice yourself to a mistaken sense of duty, Agnes.' More agitated for a moment than I had ever seen her, she took her hands from me and moved a step back. "'Say you have no such thought, dear Agnes, much more than sister.' think of the priceless gift of such a heart as yours of such a love as yours oh long long afterwards i saw that face rise up before me with its momentary look not wondering not accusing not regretting oh long long afterwards i saw that look subside as it did now into the lovely smile with which she told me she had no fear for herself i need have none for her and parted from me by the name of brother and was gone it was dark in the morning when I got upon the coach at the inn door. The day was just breaking when we were about to start, and then, as I sat thinking of her, came struggling up the coachside through the mingled day and night Uriah's head. Copperfield, he said in a croaking whisper as he hung by the iron on the roof, I thought you'd be glad to hear before you went off that there's no squares broke between us. I've been into his room already, and we've made it all smooth why though i'm humble i'm useful to him you know he understands his interest when he isn't in liquor what an agreeable man he is after all master copperfield i obliged myself to say that i was glad he had made his apology oh to be sure said uriah when a person's humble you know what's an apology so easy i say i suppose with a jerk you have sometimes plucked a pear before it was ripe master copperfield i suppose i have I replied. I did that last night, said Uriah, but it'll ripen yet. It only wants attending to. I can wait. Profuse in his farewells, he got down again as the coachman got up. For anything I know, he was eating something to keep the raw morning air out, but he made motions with his mouth as if the pear were ripe already, and he were smacking his lips over it. End of chapter 39「Forty of David Copperfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tighe Hines.
David Copperfield by Charles Dickens Chapter 40 The Wanderer We had a very serious conversation in Buckingham Street that night about the domestic occurrences I have detailed in the last chapter. My aunt was deeply interested in them, and walked up and down the room with her arms folded for more than two hours afterwards. Whenever she was particularly discomposed, she always performed one of these pedestrian feats, and the amount of her discomposure might be always estimated by the duration of her walk. On this occasion she was so much disturbed in mind as to find it necessary to open the bedroom door, and make a course for herself comprising the full extent of the bedrooms from wall to wall and while mr dick and i sat quietly by the fire she kept passing in and out along this measured track at an unchanging pace with the regularity of a clock pendulum when my aunt and i were left to ourselves by mr dick's going out to bed i sat down to write my letter to the two old ladies by that time she was tired of walking and sat by the fire with her dress tucked up as usual but instead of sitting in her usual manner holding her glass upon her knee she suffered it to stand neglected upon the chimney-piece and resting her left elbow on her right arm and her chin on her left hand looked thoughtfully at me as often as i raised my eyes from what i was about i met hers i am in the lovingest of tempers my dear she would assure me with a nod but i am fidgeted and sorry i had been too busy to observe until after she was gone to bed that she had left her night mixture as she always called it untasted on the chimney-piece she came to her door with even more than her usual affection of manner when i knocked to acquaint her with this discovery but only said i have not the heart to take a trot to-night and shook her head and went in again she read my letter to the two old ladies in the morning and approved of it i posted it and had nothing to do then but wait as patiently as i could for the reply i was still in this state of expectation and had been for nearly a week when i left the doctor's one snowy night to walk home it had been a bitter day, and a cutting north-east wind had blown for some time. The wind had gone down with the light, and so the snow had come on. It was a heavy settled fall, I recollect, in great flakes, and it lay thick. The noise of wheels and tread of people were as hushed as if the streets had been strewn that depth with feathers. My shortest way home, and I naturally took the shortest way on such a night, was through St. Martin's Lane now the church which gives its name to the lane stood in a less free situation at that time there being no open space before it and the lane winding down to the strand as i passed the steps of the portico i encountered at the corner a woman's face it looked into mine and passed across the narrow lane and disappeared i knew it i had seen it somewhere but i could not remember where i had some association with it that struck upon my heart directly but i was thinking of anything else when it came upon me and was confused on the steps of the church there was the stooping figure of a man who had put down some burden on the smooth snow to adjust it my seeing the face and my seeing him were simultaneous i don't think i had stopped in my surprise but in any case as i went on he rose turned and came down towards me i stood face to face with mr peggotty then i remembered the woman it was Martha, to whom Emily had given the money that night in the kitchen, Martha Endell, side by side with whom he would not have seen his dear niece, Ham had told me, for all the treasures wrecked in the sea. We shook hands heartily. At first neither of us could speak a word. "'Master Davy,' he said, gripping me tight, "'it do my heart good to see you, sir. Well met, well met.' "'Well met, my dear old friend,' said I. 
"'I had my thoughts of coming down to make inquiration for you, sir, to-night,' he said. "'But knowing as your aunt was living along with you, for I'd been down yonder, Yarmouth way, I was afeard it was too late. "'I should have come early in the morning, sir, afore going away.' "'Again?' said I. "'Yes, sir,' he replied, patiently shaking his head. "'I'm away to-morrow.' "'And where are you going now?' I asked. "'Well,' he replied, shaking the snow out of his long hair, "'I was a-going to turn in somewheres.' In those days there was a side entrance to the stable-yard of the Golden Cross, the inn so memorable to me in connection with his misfortune, nearly opposite to where we stood. I pointed out the gateway, put my arm through his, and we went across. Two or three public rooms opened out of the stable-yard, and looking into one of them, and finding it empty and a good fire burning, I took him in there. When I saw him in the light I observed not only that his hair was long and ragged, but that his face was burnt dark by the sun. It was greyer, the lines in his face and forehead were deeper, and he had every appearance of having toiled and wandered through all varieties of weather. But he looked very strong, and like a man upheld by steadfastness of purpose, whom nothing could tire out. He shook the snow from his hat and clothes and brushed it away from his face while I was inwardly making these remarks. As he sat down opposite to me at the table, with his back to the door by which we had entered, he put out his rough hand again and grasped mine warmly. "'I tell you, Master Davy,' he said, "'where all I've been and what all we've heard. I've been fur and we've heard little, but I'll tell you.' I rang the bell for something hot to drink. He would have nothing stronger than ale, and while it was being brought and being warmed at the fire he sat thinking. There was a fine massive gravity in his face I did not venture to disturb. "'When she was a child,' he said, lifting up his head soon after we were left alone, "'she used to talk to me a deal about the sea, and about them coasts where the sea got to be dark blue and to lay a-shining and a-shining in the sun. I thought odd times, as her father being drowned, made her think on it so much. I don't know, you see, but maybe she believed or hoped he had drifted out to them parts where the flowers is always a-blowin' and the country bright. It is likely to have been a childish fancy, I replied. When she was lost, said Mr. Peggotty, I knowed in my mind as he would take her to them countries. I knowed in my mind as he'd have told her wonders of them, and how she was to be a lady there, and how he'd got her to listen to him first, along as such like. When we see his mother, I knowed quite as well as I was right. I went across Channel to France, and landed there as if I fell down from the sky. I saw the door move, and the snow drift in. I saw it move a little more, and a hand softly interposed to keep it open. I found out an English gentleman as was in authority, said Mr. Peggotty, and told him I was a-going to see my niece. He got me them papers as I wanted for to carry me through. I do not rightly know how they're called, and he would have given me money, but that I was thankful to have no need on. I thank him kind after all he'd done, I'm sure. I wrote it for you, he says to me, and I shall speak to many as will come that way, and many will know you, far distant from here, when you're a-travelling alone. I told him, best as I was able, what my gratitude was, and went away through France. "'Alone and on foot,' said I. "'Mostly afoot,' he rejoined. "'Sometimes in carts along a people going to market, sometimes in empty coaches. Many mile a day afoot, and often with some poor soldier or another, travelling to see his friends. I couldn't talk to him,' said Mr. Peggotty, "'nor him to me, but we was company for one another, too, along the dusty roads.' I should have known that by his friendly tone. 
when i come to any town he pursued i found the inn and waited about the yard till someone turned up someone mostly did as knowed english then i told them that i was on my way to seek my niece and they told me what manner of gentlefolks was in the house and i waited to see annie as seemed like her going in or out when it weren't emily i went on again by little and little when i came to a new village or that among the poor people i found they'd knowed about me they would set me down at their cottage doors and give me what not for to eat and drink and show me where to sleep and many a woman master davy as has had a daughter of about emily's age i found a waiting for me at our saviour's cross outside the village for to do me similar kindnesses some has had daughters as was dead and god only knows how good them mothers was to me it was martha at the door i saw her haggard listening face distinctly my dread was lest he should turn his head and see her too they would often put their children particularly their little girls said mr peggotty upon my knee and many a time you might have seen me sitting at their doors when night was coming in almost as if they'd been my darling's children oh my darling overpowered by a sudden grief he sobbed aloud i laid my trembling hand upon the hand he put before his face thank ye sir he said do and take no notice in a very little while he took his hand away and put it on his breast and went on with his story they often walked with me he said in the morning maybe a mile or two upon the road and when we parted and i said i'm very thankful to you god bless you they always seemed to understand and answered pleasant at last i came to the sea it weren't hard you may suppose for a seafarer man like me to work his way over to italy when i got there i wandered on as i had done before and people was just as good to me and i should have gone from town to town maybe the country through but that i got news of our being seen among them swiss mountains yonder one has noticed servants see them there all three and told me how they travelled and where they was i made for them mountains master davy day and night ever so far i went ever so far the mountains seemed to shift away from me but i came up with them and crossed them and when i got nigh the place as i had been told of i began to think within my own self what shall i do when i see her the listening face insensible to the inclement night still drooped at the door and the hands begged me prayed me not to cast it forth i never doubted her said mr peggotty no not a bit only let her see my face only let her hear my voice only let my standing still afore her bring to her thoughts the home she had fled away from and the child she had been and if she had grown to be a royal lady she'd have fell down at my feet i knowed it well many a time in my sleep i had heard her cry out uncle and seen her fall like death afore me many a time in my sleep i had raised her up and whispered to her emily my dear i am come for to bring forgiveness and to take you home he stopped and shook his head and went on with a sigh he was now to me now emily was all i bought a country dress to put upon her and i know that once found she would walk beside me over them stony roads go where i would and never never leave me more to put that dress upon her and to cast off what she wore to take her on my arm again and wander towards home to stop sometimes upon the road and heal her bruised feet and her worst bruised heart was all that i thought of now i don't believe i should have done so much as to look at him but master davy it weren't to be not yet i was too late and they were gone where i couldn't learn some said here some said there i travelled here and i travelled there but i found no emily and i travelled home how long ago i asked 
a matter of four days said mr peggotty i sighted the old boat after dark and the light a shining in the window when i came nigh and looked in through the glass i see the faithful creature mrs gummidge sitting by the fire as we had fixed upon alone i called out don't be afeard it's dan'l and i went in i never could have thought the old boat could have been so strange from some pocket in his breast he took out with a very careful hand a small paper bundle containing two or three letters or little packets which he laid upon the table this fust one come he said selecting it from the rest afore i had been gone a week a fifty-pound bank-note and a sheet of paper directed to me and put underneath the door in the night she tried to hide her writing but she couldn't hide it from me he folded up the note again with great patience and care in exactly the same form and laid it on one side this came to mrs gummidge he said opening another two or three months ago after looking at it for some moments he gave it to me and added in a low voice be so good as read it sir i read as follows oh what you will feel when you see this writing and know it comes from my wicked hand but try try not for my sake but for uncle's goodness try to let your heart soften to me only for a little little time try pray do to relent towards a miserable girl and write down on a bit of paper whether he is well and what he said about me before you left off ever naming me among yourselves and whether of a night when it is my old time of coming home you ever see him look as if he thought of one he used to love so dear oh my heart is breaking when i think about it i am kneeling down to you begging and praying you not to be as hard with me as i deserve as i well well know i deserve but to be so gentle and so good as to write down something of him and to send it to me you need not call me little and you need not call me by the name i have disgraced but oh listen to my agony and have mercy on me so far as to write some word of uncle never never to be seen in this world by my eyes again dear if your heart is hard towards me justly hard i know but listen if it is hard dear ask him i have wronged the most him whose wife i was to have been before you quite decide against my poor poor prayer if he should be so compassionate as to say that you might write something for me to read i think he would oh i think he would if you would only ask him for he always was so brave and so forgiving tell him then but not else that when i hear the wind blowing at night i feel as if it was passing angrily from seeing him and uncle and was going up to god against me tell him that if i was to die to-morrow and oh if i was fit i would be so glad to die i would bless him and uncle with my last words and pray for his happy home with my last breath some money was enclosed in this letter also five pounds it was untouched like the previous sum and he refolded it in the same way detailed instructions were added relative to the address of a reply which though they betrayed the intervention of several hands and made it difficult to arrive at any very probable conclusion in reference to her place of concealment made it at least not unlikely that she had written from that spot where she was stated to have been seen what answer was sent i inquired of mr peggotty mrs gummidge he returned not being a good scholar sir ham kindly drawed it out and she made a copy on it they told her i was gone to seek her and what my parting words was is that another letter in your hand said i it's money sir said mr peggotty unfolding it a little way ten pound you see and wrote inside from a true friend like the first but the first was put underneath the door and this come by the post day afore yesterday i'm a-going to seek her at the postmark he showed it to me 
It was a town on the Upper Rhine. He had found out at Yarmouth some foreign dealers who knew that country, and they had drawn him a rude map on paper, which he could very well understand. He laid it between us on the table, and, with his chin resting on one hand, tracked his course upon it with the other. I asked him how Ham was. He shook his head. "'He works,' he said, "'as bold as a man can. His name's as good in all them parts as any man's is anywheres in the world.' anyone's hand is ready to help him you understand and his is ready to help them he's never been heard for to complain but my sister's belief is twixt ourselves as it has cut him deep poor fellow i can believe it he ain't no care master davy said mr peggotty in a solemn whisper kinder no care nohow for his life when a man's wanted for rough service in rough weather he's there and when there's hard duty to be done with danger in it, he steps forward afore all his mates. And yet he's as gentle as any child. There ain't a child in Yarmouth that doant know him. He gathered up the letters thoughtfully, smoothing them with his hand, put them into their little bundle, and placed it tenderly in his breast again. The face was gone from the door. I still saw the snow drifting in, but nothing else was there. Well, he said, looking into his bag, haven't seen you to-night master davy and that does me good i shall away betimes to-morrow morning you've seen what i've got here putting his hand on where the little packet lay all that troubles me is to think that any harm might come to me afore that money was give back if i was to die and if it was lost or stole or elseways made away with and it was never known by him but what i took it i believe t'other world wouldn't hold me i believe i must come back he rose and i rose too we grasped each other by the hand again before going out i'd go ten thousand mile he said i'd go till i drop dead to lay that money down afore him if i do that and find my emily i'm content if i do and find her maybe she'll come to hear some time as her loving uncle only ended his search for her when he ended his life and if i know her even that'll turn her home at last as he went out into the rigorous night i saw the lonely figure flit away before us i turned him hastily on some pretence and held him in conversation until it was gone he spoke of a traveller's house on the dover road where he knew he could find a clean plain lodging for the night i went with him over westminster bridge and parted from him on the surrey shore everything seemed to my imagination to be hushed in reverence for him as he resumed his solitary journey through the snow I returned to the inn-yard, and, impressed by my remembrance of the face, looked awfully around for it. It was not there. The snow had covered our late footprints. My new track was the only one to be seen. And even that began to die away. It snowed so fast, as I looked back over my shoulder. End of chapter 40《Chapter 41 of David Copperfield this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter 41. Dora's Aunts. At last an answer came from the two old ladies. They presented their compliments to Mr. Copperfield and informed him that they had given his letter their best consideration, with a view to the happiness of both parties, which I thought rather an alarming expression, not only because of the use they made of it in relation to the family difference before mentioned, but because I had, and have all my life, observed that conventional phrases are a sort of fireworks, easily let off and liable to take a great variety of shapes and colours, not at all 
all suggested by their original form the mrs spenlows added that they begged to forbear expressing through the medium of correspondence an opinion on the subject of mr copperfield's communication but that if mr copperfield would do them the favour to call upon a certain day accompanied if he thought proper by a confidential friend they would be happy to hold some conversation on the subject to this favour mr copperfield immediately replied with his respectful compliments that he would have the honour of waiting on the mrs spenlows at the time appointed accompanied in accordance with their kind permission by his friend mr thomas traddles of the inner temple having dispatched which missive mr copperfield fell into a condition of strong nervous agitation and so remained until the day arrived it was a great augmentation of my uneasiness to be bereaved at this eventful crisis of the inestimable services of miss mills but mr mills who was always doing something or other to annoy me where i felt as if he were which was the same thing had brought his conduct to a climax by taking it into his head that he would go to india why should he go to india except to harass me to be sure he had nothing to do with any other part of the world and had a good deal to do with that part being entirely in the india trade whatever that was i had floating dreams myself concerning golden shawls and elephants teeth having been at calcutta in his youth and designing now to go there again in the capacity of resident partner but this was nothing to me however it was so much to him that for india he was bound and julia with him and julia went into the country to take leave of her relations and the house was put into a perfect suit of bills announcing that it was to be let or sold and that the furniture mangle and all was to be taken at a valuation so here was another earthquake of which i became the sport before i had recovered from the shock of its predecessor i was in several minds how to dress myself on the important day being divided between my desire to appear to advantage and my apprehensions of putting on anything that might impair my severely practical character in the eyes of the mrs spenlow i endeavoured to hit a happy medium between these two extremes my aunt approved the result and mr dick threw one of his shoes after traddles and me for luck as we went downstairs excellent fellow as i knew traddles to be and warmly attached to him as i was i could not help wishing on that delicate occasion that he had never contracted the habit of brushing his hair so very upright it gave him a surprised look not to say a hearth-broomy kind of expression which my apprehensions whispered might be fatal to us i took the liberty of mentioning it to traddles as we were walking to putney and saying that if he would smooth it down a little my dear copperfield said traddles lifting off his hat and rubbing his hair all kinds of ways nothing would give me greater pleasure but it won't won't be smoothed down said i no said traddles nothing will induce it if i was to carry a hundred weight upon it all the way to putney it would be up again the moment the weight was taken off you have no idea what obstinate hair mine is copperfield i am quite a fretful porcupine i was a little disappointed i must confess but thoroughly charmed by his good nature too i told him how i esteemed his good nature and said that his hair must have taken all the obstinacy out of his character for he had none oh returned traddles laughing i assure you it's quite an old story my unfortunate hair my uncle's wife couldn't bear it she said it exasperated her it stood very much in my way too when i first fell in love with sophy very much did she object to it she didn't rejoined traddles but her eldest sister the one that's the beauty quite made game of it i understand in fact all the sisters laugh at it agreeable said i 
"'Yes,' returned Traddles, with perfect innocence. "'It's a joke for us. They pretend that Sophie has a lock of it in her desk, and she is obliged to shut it in a clasped book to keep it down. We laugh about it.' "'By the by, my dear Traddles,' said I, "'your experience may suggest something to me. When you became engaged to the young lady whom you have just mentioned, did you make a regular proposal to her family? Was there anything like what we are going through today, for instance?' I added nervously. "'Why,' replied Traddles, on whose attentive face a thoughtful shade had stolen, "'it was rather a painful transaction, Copperfield, in my case. You see, Sophie, being of so much use in the family, none of them could endure the thought of her ever being married. Indeed, they had quite settled among themselves that she was never to be married, and they called her the old maid. Accordingly, when I mentioned it, with the greatest precaution to Mrs. Crewler—'The mamma,' said I, the mamma said traddles reverend horace crewler when i mentioned it with every possible precaution to mrs crewler the effect upon her was such that she gave a scream and became insensible i couldn't approach the subject again for months you did at last said i well the reverend horace did said traddles he's an excellent man most exemplary in every way and he pointed out to her that she ought as a christian to reconcile herself to the sacrifice especially as it was so uncertain and to bear no uncharitable feeling towards me as to myself copperfield i give you my word i felt the perfect bird of prey towards the family the sisters took your part i hope traddles why i can't say they did he returned when we had comparatively reconciled mrs crewler to it we had to break it to sarah you recollect my mentioning sarah as the one that has something the matter with her spine perfectly she clenched both her hands said traddles looking at me in dismay shut her eyes turned lead colour became perfectly stiff and took nothing for two days but toast and water administered with a teaspoon what a very unpleasant girl traddles i remarked oh i beg your pardon copperfield said traddles she's a very charming girl but she has a great deal of feeling in fact they all have sophie told me afterwards that the self-reproach she underwent while she was in attendance upon sarah no words could describe i know it must have been severe by my own feelings copperfield which were like a criminal's after sarah was restored we still had to break it to the other eight and it produced various effects upon them of a most pathetic nature the two little ones whom sophie educates have only just left off detesting me at any rate they are all reconciled to it now i hope said i yes i should say they were on the whole resigned to it said traddles doubtfully the fact is we avoid mentioning the subject and my unsettled prospects and indifferent circumstances are a great consolation to them there will be a deplorable scene whenever we are married it will be much more like a funeral than a wedding and they'll all hate me for taking her away his honest face, as he looked at me with a serio-comic shake of his head, impresses me more in the remembrance than it did in the reality, for I was by this time in a state of such excessive trepidation and wandering of mind as to be quite unable to fix my attention on anything. On our approaching the house where the Mrs. Spenlow lived, I was at such a discount in respect of my personal looks and presence of mind that Traddles proposed a gentle stimulant in the form of a glass of ale this having been administered at a neighbouring public-house he conducted me with tottering steps to the mrs spenlow's door i had a vague sensation of being as it were on view when the maid opened it and of wavering somehow across a hall with a weather-glass in it into a quiet little drawing-room on the ground floor commanding a neat garden 
also of sitting down here on a sofa and seeing traddles hair start up now that his hat was removed like one of those obtrusive little figures made of springs that fly out of fictitious snuff-boxes when the lid is taken off also of hearing an old-fashioned clock ticking away on the chimney-piece and trying to make it keep time to the jerking of my heart which it wouldn't also of looking round the room for any sign of dora and seeing none also of thinking that jip once barked in the distance and was instantly choked by somebody ultimately i found myself backing traddles into the fireplace and bowing in great confusion to two dry little elderly ladies dressed in black and each looking wonderfully like a preparation in chip or tan of the late mr spenlow pray said one of the two little ladies be seated when i had done tumbling over traddles and had sat upon something which was not a cat my first seat was i so far recovered my sight as to perceive that mr spenlow had evidently been the youngest of the family that there was a disparity of six or eight years between the two sisters and that the younger appeared to be the manager of the conference inasmuch as she had my letter in her hand so familiar as it looked to me and yet so odd and was referring to it through an eyeglass they were dressed alike but this sister wore her dress with a more youthful air than the other and perhaps had a trifle more frill or tucker or brooch or bracelet or some little thing of that kind which made her look more lively they were both upright in their carriage formal precise composed and quiet the sister who had not my letter had her arms crossed on her breast and resting on each other like an idol mr copperfield i believe said the sister who had got my letter addressing herself to traddles this was a frightful beginning traddles had to indicate that i was mr copperfield and i had to lay claim to myself and they had to divest themselves of a preconceived opinion that traddles was mr copperfield and altogether we were in a nice condition to improve it we all distinctly heard jip give two short barks and receive another choke mr copperfield said the sister with the letter i did something bowed i suppose and was all attention when the other sister struck in my sister lavinia she said being conversant in matters of this nature will state what we consider most calculated to promote the happiness of both parties i discovered afterwards that miss lavinia was an authority in affairs of the heart by reason of there having anciently existed a certain mr pidger who played short whist and was supposed to have been enamoured of her my private opinion is that this was entirely a gratuitous assumption and that pidger was altogether innocent of any such sentiments to which he had never given any sort of expression that i could ever hear of both miss lavinia and miss clarissa had a superstition however that he would have declared his passion if he had not been cut short in his youth at about sixty by over-drinking his constitution and overdoing an attempt to set it right again by swilling bath-water they had a lurking suspicion even that he died of secret love though i must say there was a picture of him in the house with a damask nose which concealment did not appear to have ever preyed upon we will not said miss lavinia enter on the past history of this matter our poor brother francis's death has cancelled that we had not said miss clarissa been in the habit of frequent association with our brother francis but there was no decided division or disunion between us francis took his road we took ours we considered it conducive to the happiness of all parties that it should be so and it was so each of the sisters leaned a little forward to speak shook her head after speaking and became upright again when silent miss clarissa never moved her arms she sometimes played tunes upon them with her fingers minuets and marches i should think but never moved them 
our niece's position or supposed position is much changed by our brother francis's death said miss lavinia and therefore we consider our brother's opinions as regarded her position as being changed too we have no reason to doubt mr copperfield that you are a young gentleman possessed of good qualities and honourable character or that you have an affection or are fully persuaded that you have an affection for our niece i replied as i usually did whenever i had a chance that nobody had ever loved anybody else as i loved dora traddles came to my assistance with a confirmatory murmur miss lavinia was going on to make some rejoinder when miss clarissa who appeared to be incessantly beset by a desire to refer to her brother francis struck in again if dora's mamma she said when she married our brother francis had at once said that there was not room for the family at the dinner-table it would have been better for the happiness of all parties sister clarissa said miss lavinia perhaps we needn't mind that now sister lavinia said miss clarissa it belongs to the subject with your branch of the subject on which you alone are competent to speak i should not think of interfering on this branch of the subject i have a voice and an opinion it would have been much better for the happiness of all parties if dora's mamma when she married our brother francis had mentioned plainly what her intentions were we should have known then what we had to expect we should have said pray do not invite us at any time and all possibility of misunderstanding would have been avoided when miss clarissa had shaken her head miss lavinia resumed again referring to my letter through her eyeglass they both had little bright round twinkling eyes by the way which were like birds eyes they were not unlike birds altogether having a sharp brisk sudden manner and a little short spruce way of adjusting themselves like canaries miss lavinia as i have said resumed you ask permission of my sister clarissa and myself mr copperfield to visit here as the accepted suitor of our niece if our brother francis said miss clarissa breaking out again if i may call anything so calm a breaking out wished to surround himself with an atmosphere of doctors commons and of doctors commons only what right or desire had we to object none i am sure we have ever been far from wishing to obtrude ourselves on any one but why not say so let our brother francis and his wife have their society let my sister lavinia and myself have our society we can find it for ourselves i hope as this appeared to be addressed to traddles and me both traddles and i made some sort of reply traddles was inaudible i think i observed myself that it was highly creditable to all concerned i don't in the least know what i meant sister lavinia said miss clarissa having now relieved her mind you can go on my dear miss lavinia proceeded mr copperfield my sister clarissa and i have been very careful indeed in considering this letter and we have not considered it without finally showing it to our niece and discussing it with our niece we have no doubt that you think you like her very much think ma'am i rapturously began oh but miss clarissa giving me a look just like a sharp canary as requesting that i would not interrupt the oracle i begged pardon affection said miss lavinia glancing at her sister for corroboration which she gave in the form of a little nod to every clause mature affection homage devotion does not easily express itself its voice is low it is modest and retiring it lies in ambush waits and waits such is the mature fruit sometimes a life glides away and finds it is still ripening in the shade of course i did not understand then that this was an allusion to her supposed experience of the stricken pidger but i saw from the gravity with which miss clarissa nodded her head that great weight was attached to these words 
the light for i call them in comparison with such sentiments the light inclinations of very young people pursued miss lavinia are dust compared to rocks it is owing to the difficulty of knowing whether they are likely to endure or have any real foundation that my sister clarissa and myself have been very undecided how to act mr copperfield and mr traddles said my friend finding himself looked at i beg pardon of the inner temple i believe said miss clarissa again glancing at my letter traddles said exactly so and became pretty red in the face now, although I had not received any express encouragement as yet, I fancied that I saw in the two little sisters, and particularly in Miss Lavinia, an intensified enjoyment of this new and fruitful subject of domestic interest, a settling down to make the most of it, a disposition to pet it, in which there was a good bright ray of hope. I thought I perceived that Miss Lavinia would have uncommon satisfaction in superintending two young lovers, like Dora and me, and that Miss Clarissa would have hardly any less satisfaction in seeing her superintend us, and in chiming in with her own particular department of the subject, whenever that impulse was strong upon her. This gave me courage to protest most vehemently that I loved Dora better than I could tell, or any one believe that all my friends knew how i loved her that my aunt agnes traddles every one who knew me knew how i loved her and how earnest my love had made me for the truth of this i appealed to traddles and traddles firing up as if he were plunging into a parliamentary debate really did come out nobly confirming me in good round terms and in a plain sensible practical manner that evidently made a favourable impression i speak if i may presume to say so as one who has some little experience of such things said traddles being myself engaged to a young lady one of ten down in devonshire and seeing no probability at present of our engagement coming to a termination you may be able to confirm what i have said mr traddles observed miss lavinia evidently taking a new interest in him of the affection that is modest and retiring that waits and waits entirely madam said traddles miss clarissa looked at miss lavinia and shook her head gravely miss lavinia looked consciously at miss clarissa and heaved a little sigh sister lavinia said miss clarissa take my smelling-bottle miss lavinia revived herself with a few whiffs of aromatic vinegar traddles and i looking on with great solicitude the while and then went on to say rather faintly my sister and myself have been in great doubt mr traddles what course we ought to take in reference to the likings or imaginary likings of such very young people as your friend mr copperfield and our niece our brother francis's child remarked clarissa if our brother francis's wife had found it convenient in her lifetime though she had an unquestionable right to act as she thought best to invite the family to her dinner-table we might have known our brother francis's child better at the present moment sister lavinia proceed miss lavinia turned my letter so as to bring the superscription towards herself and referred through her eyeglass to some orderly-looking note she had made on that part of it it seems to us said she prudent mr traddles to bring these feelings to the test of our own observation at present we know nothing of them we are not in a situation to judge how much reality there may be in them therefore we are inclined so far to accede to mr copperfield's proposal as to admit his visits here i shall never dear ladies i exclaimed relieved of an immense load of apprehension forget your kindness but pursued miss lavinia but we would prefer to regard those visits mr traddles as made at present to us we must guard ourselves from recognising any positive engagement between mr copperfield and our niece until we have had an opportunity 
until you have had an opportunity sister lavinia said miss clarissa be it so said miss lavinia with a sigh until i have had an opportunity of observing them copperfield said traddles turning to me you feel i am sure that nothing could be more reasonable or considerate nothing cried i i am deeply sensible of it in this position of affairs said miss lavinia again referring to her notes and admitting his visits on this understanding only we must require from mr copperfield a distinct assurance on his word of honour that no communication of any kind shall take place between him and our niece without our knowledge that no project whatever shall be entertained with regard to our niece without first being submitted to us to you sister lavinia miss clarissa interposed be it so clarissa assented miss lavinia resignedly to me and receiving our concurrence we must make this a most express and serious stipulation not to be broken on any account we wished mr copperfield to be accompanied by some confidential friend to-day with an inclination of our head towards traddles who bowed in order that there might be no doubt or misconception on this subject if mr copperfield or if you mr traddles feel the least scruple in giving this promise i beg you to take time to consider it i exclaimed in a state of high ecstatic fervour that not a moment's consideration would be necessary i bound myself to the required promise in a most impassioned manner called upon traddles to witness it and denounced myself as the most atrocious of characters if i ever swerved from it in the least degree stay said miss lavinia holding up her hand we resolved before we had the pleasure of receiving you two gentlemen to leave you alone for a quarter of an hour to consider this point you will allow us to retire it was in vain for me to say that no consideration was necessary they persisted in withdrawing for the specified time accordingly these little birds hopped out with great dignity leaving me to receive the congratulations of traddles and to feel as if i were translated to regions of exquisite happiness exactly at the expiration of the quarter of an hour they reappeared with no less dignity than they had disappeared they had gone rustling away as if their little dresses were made of autumn leaves and they came rustling back in a like manner i then bound myself once more to the prescribed conditions sister clarissa said miss lavinia the rest is with you miss clarissa unfolding her arms for the first time took the notes and glanced at them we shall be happy said miss clarissa to see mr copperfield to dinner every sunday if it should suit his convenience our hour is three i bowed in the course of the week said miss clarissa we shall be happy to see mr copperfield to tea our hour is half-past six i bowed again twice in the week said miss clarissa but as a rule not oftener i bowed again miss trotwood said miss clarissa mentioned in mr copperfield's letter will perhaps call upon us when visiting is better for the happiness of all parties we are glad to receive visits and return them when it is better for the happiness of all parties that no visiting should take place as in the case of our brother francis and his establishment that is quite different i intimated that my aunt would be proud and delighted to make their acquaintance though i must say i was not quite so sure of their getting on very satisfactorily together the conditions being now closed i expressed my acknowledgments in the warmest manner and taking the hand first of miss clarissa and then of miss lavinia pressed it in each case to my lips miss lavinia then arose and begging mr traddles to excuse us for a minute requested me to follow her i obeyed all in a tremble and was conducted to another room 
there i found my blessed darling stopping her ears behind the door with her dear little face against the wall and jip in the plate warmer with his head tied up in a towel oh how beautiful she was in her black frock and how she sobbed and cried at first and wouldn't come out from behind the door how fond we were of one another when she did come out at last and what a state of bliss i was in when we took jip out of the plate warmer and restored him to the light sneezing very much and were all three reunited my dearest dora now indeed my own for ever oh don't pleaded dora please are you not my own for ever dora oh yes of course i am cried dora but i am so frightened frightened my own oh yes i don't like him said dora why don't he go who my life your friend said dora it isn't any business of his what a stupid he must be my love there never was anything so coaxing as her childish ways he is the best creature oh but we don't want any best creatures pouted dora my dear i argued you will soon know him well and like him of all things and there is my aunt coming soon and you like her of all things too when you know her no please don't bring her said dora giving me a horrified little kiss and folding her hands don't i know she's a naughty mischief-making old thing don't let her come here doady which was a corruption of david remonstrance was of no use then so i laughed and admired her and was very much in love and very happy and she showed me Jip's new trick of standing on his hind legs in a corner, which he did for about the space of a flash of lightning, and then fell down. And I don't know how long I should have stayed there, oblivious of Traddles, if Miss Lavinia had not come in to take me away. Miss Lavinia was very fond of Dora. She told me Dora was exactly like what she had been herself at her age. She must have altered a good deal. And she treated Dora just as if she had been a toy. I wanted to persuade Dora to come and see Traddles, but on my proposing it she ran off to her own room and locked herself in. So I went to Traddles without her and walked away with him on air. "'Nothing could be more satisfactory,' said Traddles, "'and they are very agreeable old ladies, I am sure. I shouldn't be at all surprised if you were to be married years before me, Copperfield.' "'Does your Sophie play any instrument, Traddles?' I inquired in the pride of my heart. She knows enough of the piano to teach it to her little sisters, said Traddles. Does she sing at all? I asked. Why, she sings ballads sometimes, to freshen up the others a little when they are out of spirits, said Traddles. Nothing scientific. She doesn't sing to the guitar, said I. Oh, dear, no, said Traddles. Paint at all? Not at all, said Traddles. I promised Traddles that he should hear Dora sing, and see some of her flower painting. He said he should like it very much, and we went home arm in arm in great good humour and delight. I encouraged him to talk about Sophie on the way, which he did with a loving reliance on her that I very much admired. I compared her in my mind with Dora with considerable inward satisfaction, but I candidly admitted to myself that she seemed to be an excellent kind of girl for Traddles, too of course my aunt was immediately made acquainted with the successful issue of the conference and with all that had been said and done in the course of it she was happy to see me so happy and promised to call on dora's aunts without loss of time but she took such a long walk up and down our rooms that night while i was writing to agnes that i began to think she meant to walk till morning my letter to Agnes was a fervent and grateful one, narrating all the good effects that had resulted from my following her advice. She wrote by return of post to me. 
her letter was hopeful and earnest and cheerful she was always cheerful from that time i had my hands more full than ever now my daily journeys to highgate considered putney was a long way off and i naturally wanted to go there as often as i could the proposed tea-drinkings being quite impracticable i compounded with miss lavinia for permission to visit every saturday afternoon without detriment to my privileged sundays so the close of every week was a delicious time for me and i got through the rest of the week by looking forward to it i was wonderfully relieved to find that my aunt and dora's aunts rubbed on all things considered much more smoothly than i could have expected my aunt made her promised visit within a few days of the conference and within a few more days dora's aunts called upon her in due state and form similar but more friendly exchanges took place afterwards usually at intervals of three or four weeks i know that my aunt distressed dora's aunts very much by utterly setting at naught the dignity of fly conveyance and walking out to putney at extraordinary times as shortly after breakfast or just before tea likewise by wearing her bonnet in any manner that happened to be comfortable to her head without at all deferring to the prejudices of civilization on that subject but dora's aunts soon agreed to regard my aunt as an eccentric and somewhat masculine lady with a strong understanding and although my aunt occasionally ruffled the feathers of dora's aunts by expressing heretical opinions on various points of ceremony she loved me too well not to sacrifice some of her little peculiarities to the general harmony the only member of our small society who positively refused to adapt himself to circumstances was jip he never saw my aunt without immediately displaying every tooth in his head retiring under a chair and growling incessantly with now and then a doleful howl as if she really were too much for his feelings all kinds of treatment were tried with him coaxing scolding slapping bringing him to buckingham street where he instantly dashed at the two cats to the terror of all beholders but he never could prevail upon himself to bear my aunt's society he would sometimes think he had got the better of his objection and be amiable for a few minutes and then would put up his snub nose and howl to that extent that there was nothing for it but to blind him and put him in the plate-warmer at length dora regularly muffled him up in a towel and shut him up there whenever my aunt was reported at the door one thing troubled me much after we had fallen into this quiet train it was that dora seemed by one consent to be regarded like a pretty toy or plaything my aunt with whom she gradually became familiar always called her little blossom and the pleasure of miss lavinia's life was to wait upon her curl her hair make ornaments for her and treat her like a pet child what miss lavinia did her sister did as a matter of course it was very odd to me but they all seemed to treat dora in her degree much as dora treated jip in his i made up my mind to speak to dora about this and one day when we were out walking for we were licensed by miss lavinia after a while to go out walking by ourselves i said to her that i wish she could get them to behave towards her differently because you know my darling i remonstrated you are not a child there said dora now you are going to be cross cross my love i am sure they're very kind to me said dora and i am very happy well but my dearest life said i you might be very happy and yet be treated rationally dora gave me a reproachful look the prettiest look and then began to sob saying if i didn't like her why had i ever wanted so much to be engaged to her and why didn't i go away now if i couldn't bear her what could i do but kiss her tears away and tell her how i doted on her after that i am sure i am very affectionate said dora but you oughtn't to be cruel to me doady 
cruel my precious love as if i would or could be cruel to you for the world then don't find fault with me said dora making a rosebud of her mouth and i'll be good i was charmed with her presently asking me of her own accord to give her that cookery book i had once spoken of and to show her how to keep accounts as i had once promised i would i brought the volume with me on my next visit i got it prettily bound first to make it look less dry and more inviting and as we strolled about the common i showed her an old housekeeping book of my aunt's and gave her a set of tablets and a pretty little pencil-case and box of leads to practise housekeeping with but the cookery book made dora's head ache and the figures made her cry they wouldn't add up she said so she rubbed them out and drew little nosegays and likenesses of me and jip all over the tablets then i playfully tried verbal instruction on domestic matters as we walked about on a saturday afternoon sometimes for example when we passed a butcher's shop i would say now suppose my pet that we were married and you were going to buy a shoulder of mutton for dinner would you know how to buy it my pretty little dora's face would fall and she would make her mouth into a bud again as if she would very much prefer to shut mine with a kiss would you know how to buy it my darling i would repeat perhaps if i were very inflexible dora would think a little and then reply perhaps with great triumph why the butcher would know how to sell it and what need i know oh you silly boy so when i once asked dora with an eye to the cookery book what she would do if we were married and i were to say i would like a nice irish stew she replied that she would tell the servant to make it and then clapped her little hands together across my arm and laughed in such a charming manner that she was more delightful than ever consequently the principal use to which the cookery book was devoted was being put down in the corner for jip to stand upon and dora was so pleased when she had trained him to stand upon it without offering to come off and at the same time to hold the pencil-case in his mouth that i was very glad i had bought it we fell back on the guitar-case and the flower-painting and the songs about never leaving off dancing tarala and were as happy as the week was long i occasionally wished i could venture to hint to miss lavinia that she treated the darling of my heart a little too much like a plaything and i sometimes awoke as it were wondering to find that i had fallen into the general fault and treated her like a plaything too but not often End of chapter forty one Chapter forty two of David Copperfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ty Kynes. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty two. Mischief. I feel as if it were not for me to record, even though this manuscript is intended for no eyes but mine, how hard I worked at that tremendous shorthand, and all improvement appertaining to it, in my sense of responsibility to Dora and her aunts. I will only add to what I have already written of my perseverance at this time of my life, and of a patient and continuous energy which then began to be matured within me, and which I know to be the strong part of my character, if it have any strength at all, that there, on looking back, I find the source of my success. I have been very fortunate in worldly matters. Many men have worked much harder, and not succeeded half so well, but I never could have done what I have done without the habits of punctuality, order, and diligence, without the determination to concentrate on one object at a time, no matter how quickly its successor should come upon its heels, which I then formed. 
Heaven knows I write this in no spirit of self-laudation. The man who reviews his own life, as I do mine, in going on here from page to page, had need to have been a good man indeed if he would be spared the sharp consciousness of many talents neglected, many opportunities wasted, many erratic and perverted feelings constantly at war within his breast and defeating him. I do not hold one natural gift, I dare say, that I have not abused. My meaning simply is that whatever I have tried to do in life, I have tried with all my heart to do well, that whatever I have devoted myself to, I have devoted myself to completely, that in great aims and in small I have always been thoroughly in earnest. I have never believed it possible that any natural or improved ability can claim immunity from the companionship of the steady, plain, hard-working qualities, and hope to gain its end. There is no such thing as such fulfilment on this earth. Some happy talent and some fortunate opportunity may form the two sides of the ladder on which some men mount, but the rounds of that ladder must be made of stuff to stand wear and tear. There is no substitute for thoroughgoing, ardent, and sincere earnestness never to put one hand to anything on which i could throw my whole self and never to affect deprecation of my work whatever it was i find now to have been my golden rules how much of this practice i have just reduced to precept i owe to agnes i will not repeat here my narrative proceeds to agnes with a thankful love she came on a visit of a fortnight to the doctor's. Mr. Wickfield was the doctor's old friend, and the doctor wished to talk with him and do him good. It had been a matter of conversation with Agnes when she was last in town, and this visit was the result. She and her father came together. I was not much surprised to hear from her that she had engaged to find a lodging in the neighbourhood for Mrs. Heap, whose rheumatic complaint required change of air, and who would be charmed to have it in such company. Neither was I surprised when, on the very next day, Uriah, like a dutiful son, brought his worthy mother to take possession. "'You see, Master Copperfield,' he said, as he forced himself upon my company for a turn in the doctor's garden, "'where a person loves, a person is a little jealous, at least is anxious to keep an eye on the beloved one.' "'Of whom are you jealous now?' said I. "'Thanks to you, Master Copperfield,' he returned. "'Of no one in particular just at present. No male person, at least.' "'Do you mean to say you are jealous of a female person?' He gave me a sidelong glance out of his sinister red eyes and laughed. "'Really, Master Copperfield,' he said, "'I should say mister, but I know you'll excuse the abbot I've got into. You are so insinuating that you draw me like a corkscrew. Well, I don't mind telling you—' putting his fish-like hand on mine. I'm not a lady's man in general, sir, and I never was with Mrs. Strong. His eyes looked green now as they watched mine with a rascally cunning. What do you mean? said I. Why, though I'm a lawyer, Master Copperfield, he replied with a dry grin, I mean just at present what I say. And what do you mean by your luck? I retorted quietly. "'By my luck? Dear me, Copperfield, that's sharp practice. What do I mean by my luck?' "'Yes,' said I, "'by your luck.' He seemed very much amused, and laughed as heartily as it was in his nature to laugh. After some scraping of his chin with his hand, he went on to say, with his eyes cast downward, still scraping, very slowly, "'When I was but an humble clerk, she always looked down upon me.' She was forever having my Agnes backwards and forwards to her house, and she was forever being a friend to you, Master Copperfield, but I was too far beneath her myself to be noticed. Well, said I, suppose you were. 
and beneath him too pursued uriah very distinctly and in a meditative tone of voice as he continued to scrape his chin don't you know the doctor better said i than to suppose him conscious of your existence when you were not before him he directed his eyes at me in that sidelong glance again and made his face very lantern-jawed for the greater convenience of scraping as he answered oh dear i'm not referring to the doctor oh now poor man i mean mr malden my heart quite died within me all my old doubts and apprehensions on that subject all the doctor's happiness and peace all the mingled possibilities of innocence and compromise that i could not unravel i saw in a moment at the mercy of this fellow's twisting he never could come into the office without ordering and shoving me about said uriah one of your fine gentlemen he was i was very meek and humble and i am but i didn't like that sort of thing and i don't he left off scraping his chin and sucked in his cheeks until they seemed to meet inside keeping his sidelong glance upon me all the while she's one of your lovely women she is he pursued when he had slowly restored his face to its natural form and ready to be no friend to such as me i know she's just the person as will put my agnes up to higher sorts of game now i ain't one of your ladies men master copperfield but i've had eyes in my head a pretty long time back we humble ones have got eyes mostly speaking and we look out of them i endeavoured to appear unconscious and not disquieted but i saw in his face with poor success now i'm not a-going to let myself be run down copperfield he continued raising that part of his countenance where his red eyebrows would have been if he had had any with malignant triumph and i shall do what i can to put a stop to this friendship i don't approve of it i don't mind acknowledging to you that i've got rather a grudging disposition and want to keep off all intruders i ain't a-going if i know it to run the risk of being plotted against you are always plotting and delude yourself into the belief that everybody else is doing the like i think said i perhaps so master copperfield he replied but i've got a motive as my fellow-partner used to say and i go at it tooth and nail i mustn't be put upon as a humble person too much i can't allow people in my way really they must come out of the cart master copperfield i don't understand you said i don't you though he returned with one of his jerks i'm astonished at that master copperfield you being usually so quick i'll try to be plainer another time is that mr maldon and horseback ringing at the gate sir it looks like him i replied as carelessly as i could uriah stopped short put his hands between his great knobs of knees and doubled himself up with laughter with perfectly silent laughter not a sound escaped from him i was so repelled by his odious behaviour particularly by this concluding instance that i turned away without any ceremony and left him doubled up in the middle of the garden like a scarecrow in want of support it was not on that evening but as well as i remember on the next evening but one which was a sunday that i took agnes to see dora i had arranged the visit beforehand with miss lavinia and agnes was expected to tea i was in a flutter of pride and anxiety pride of my dear little betrothed and anxiety that agnes should like her all the way to putney agnes being inside the stage-coach and i outside i pictured dora to myself in every one of the pretty looks i knew so well now making up my mind that i should like her to look exactly as she looked at such a time and then doubting whether i should not prefer her looking as she looked at such another time and almost worrying myself into a fever about it i was troubled by no doubt about her being very pretty in any case but it fell out that i had never seen her look so well 
She was not in the drawing-room when I presented Agnes to her little aunts, but was shyly keeping out of the way. I knew where to look for her now, and sure enough I found her stopping her ears again behind the same dull old door. At first she wouldn't come at all, and then she pleaded for five minutes by my watch. At length she put her arm through mine to be taken to the drawing-room. Her charming little face was flushed and had never been so pretty. But when we went into the room and it turned pale, she was ten thousand times prettier yet. Dora was afraid of Agnes. She had told me that she knew Agnes was too clever. But when she saw her looking at once so cheerful and so earnest and so thoughtful and so good, she gave a faint little cry of pleased surprise, and just put her affectionate arms round Agnes's neck and laid her innocent cheek against her face. I never was so happy. I never was so pleased that when I saw those two sit down together side by side, as when I saw my little darling looking up so naturally to those cordial eyes, as when I saw the tender, beautiful regard which Agnes cast upon her. Miss Lavinia and Miss Clarissa partook, in their way, of my joy. It was the pleasantest tea-table in the world. Miss Clarissa presided. I cut and handed the sweet seed-cake. The little sisters had a bird-like fondness for picking up seeds and pecking at sugar. Miss Lavinia looked on with benignant patronage, as if our happy love were all her work, and we were perfectly contented with ourselves and one another the gentle cheerfulness of agnes went to all their hearts her quiet interest in everything that interested dora her manner of making acquaintance with jip who responded instantly her pleasant way when dora was ashamed to come over to her usual seat by me her modest grace and ease eliciting a crowd of blushing little marks of confidence from dora seemed to make our circle quite complete i am so glad said dora after tea that you like me i didn't think you would and I want more than ever to be liked now Julia Mills is gone. I've omitted to mention it, by the by. Miss Mills had sailed, and Dora and I had gone aboard a great East India man at Gravesend to see her, and we had had preserved ginger and guava and other delicacies of that sort for lunch, and we had left Miss Mills weeping on a camp-stool on the quarter-deck, with a large new diary under her arm on which the original reflections awakened by the contemplation of ocean were to be recorded under lock and key. Agnes said she was afraid I must have given her an unpromising character, but Dora corrected that directly. "'Oh, no,' she replied, shaking her curls at me. "'It was all praise. He thinks so much of your opinion that I was quite afraid of it.' "'My good opinion cannot strengthen his attachment to some people whom he knows,' said Agnes, with a smile. "'It is not worth their having.' "'Oh, but please let me have it,' said Dora, in her coaxing way, "'if you can.' We made merry about Dora's wanting to be liked, and Dora said I was a goose and she didn't like me at any rate, and the short evening flew away on gossamer wings. The time was at hand when the coach was to call for us. I was standing alone before the fire when Dora came stealing in softly to give me that usual precious little kiss before I went. "'Don't you think if I had had her for a friend a long time ago, Dodie?' said Dora, her bright eyes shining very brightly, and her little right hand idly busying itself with one of the buttons of my coat. I might have been more clever, perhaps.' "'My love,' said I, "'what nonsense!' "'Do you think it is nonsense?' returned Dora, without looking at me. "'Are you sure it is?' "'Of course I am.' "'I have forgotten,' said Dora, still turning the button round and round. "'What relation Agnes is to you, my dear bad boy?' "'No blood relation,' replied I. "'But we were brought up together, like brother and sister.' "'I wonder why you ever fell in love with me,' said Dora, beginning on another button of my coat. 
"'Perhaps because I couldn't see you and not love you, Dora.' "'Suppose you had never seen me at all,' said Dora, going to another button. "'Suppose we had never been born,' said I gaily. I wondered what she was thinking about as I glanced in admiring silence at the little soft hand travelling up the row of buttons on my coat, and at the clustering hair that lay against my breast, and at the lashes of her downcast eyes slightly rising as they followed her idle fingers. At length her eyes were lifted up to mine, and she stood on tiptoe and gave me, more thoughtfully than usual, that precious little kiss, once, twice, three times, and went out of the room. They all came back together within five minutes afterwards, and Dora's unusual thoughtfulness was quite gone then. She was laughingly resolved to put Jip through the whole of his performances before the coach came. They took some time, not so much on account of their variety as Jip's reluctance, and were still unfinished when it was heard at the door. There was a hurried but affectionate parting between Agnes and herself, and Dora was to write to Agnes, who was not to mind her letters being foolish, she said, and Agnes was to write to Dora, and they had a second parting at the coach-door, and a third when Dora, in spite of the remonstrances of Miss Lavinia, would come running out once more to remind Agnes at the coach-window about writing, and to shake her curls at me on the box. The stage-coach was to put down near Covent Garden, where we were to take another stage-coach for Highgate. I was impatient for the short walk in the interval, that Agnes might praise Dora to me. Ah, what praise it was! How lovingly and fervently did it commend the pretty creature I had won, with all her artless graces best displayed, to my most gentle care! How thoughtfully remind me, yet with no pretence of doing so, of the trust in which I held the orphan child! Never, never had I loved Dora so deeply and truly as I loved her that night! when we had again alighted and were walking in the starlight along the quiet road that led to the doctor's house i told agnes it was her doing when you were sitting by her said i you seemed to be no less her guardian angel than mine and you seem so now agnes the poor angel she returned but faithful the clear tone of her voice going straight to my heart made it natural to me to say the cheerfulness that belongs to you agnes and to no one else that ever i have seen is so restored, I have observed to-day, that I have begun to hope you are happier at home. I am happier in myself, she said. I am quite cheerful and light-hearted. I glanced at the serene face looking upward, and thought it was the stars that bade it seem so noble. There has been no change at home, said Agnes, after a few moments. No fresh reference, said I, to—I wouldn't distress you, Agnes, but I cannot help asking—to what we spoke of when we parted last. No, none she answered. I've thought so much about it. You must think less about it. Remember that I confide in simple love and truth at last. Have no apprehensions for me, Trotwood, she added after a moment. The step you dread my taking I shall never take. Although I think I had never really feared it, in any season of cool reflection, it was an unspeakable relief to me to have this assurance from her own truthful lips. I told her so earnestly. "'And when this visit is over,' said I, "'for we may not be alone another time, "'how long is it likely to be, my dear Agnes, "'before you come to London again?' "'Probably a long time,' she replied. "'I think it will be best for Papa's sake to remain at home. "'We are not likely to meet often for some time to come, "'but I shall be a good correspondent of Doris, "'and we shall frequently hear of one another that way.' "'We were now within the little courtyard of the doctor's cottage. "'It was going late.' There was a light in the window of Mrs. Strong's chamber, and Agnes, pointing to it, bade me good-night. 
"'Do not be troubled,' she said, giving me her hand. "'By our misfortunes and anxieties, I can be happier in nothing than in your happiness. If you can ever give me help, rely upon it, I will ask you for it. God bless you always.' In her beaming smile, and in these last tones of her cheerful voice, I seemed again to see and hear my little Dora in her company. I stood a while looking through the porch at the stars, with a heart full of love and gratitude, and then walked slowly forth. I had engaged a bed at a decent alehouse close by, and was going out at the gate when, happening to turn my head, I saw a light in the doctor's study. A half-reproachful fancy came into my mind that he had been working on the dictionary without my help, with a view of seeing if this were so, and, in any case, of bidding him good-night if he were yet sitting among his books. I turned back, and, going softly across the hall and gently opening the door, looked in. The first person whom I saw, to my surprise by the sober light of the shaded lamp, was Uriah. He was standing close beside it, with one of his skeleton hands over his mouth, and the other resting on the doctor's table. The doctor sat in his study chair, covering his face with his hands. Mr. Wickfield, sorely troubled and distressed, was leaning forward, irresolutely touching the doctor's arm. For an instant I supposed that the doctor was ill. I hastily advanced a step under that impression when I met Uriah's eye and saw what was the matter. I would have withdrawn, but the doctor made a gesture to detain me, and I remained. "'At any rate,' observed Uriah, with a writhe of his ungainly person, "'we may keep the door shut. We needn't make it known to all the town.' Saying which, he went on his toes to the door, which I had left open, and carefully closed it. He then came back and took up his former position. There was an obtrusive show of compassionate zeal in his voice and manner, more intolerable, at least to me, than any demeanour he could have assumed. "'I have felt it incumbent upon me, Master Copperfield,' said Uriah, "'to point out to Dr. Strong what you and me have already talked about. You didn't exactly understand me, though.' I gave him a look, but no other answer, and, going to my good old master, said a few words that I meant to be words of comfort and encouragement. He put his hand upon my shoulder, as it had been his custom to do when I was quite a little fellow, but did not lift his grey head. "'As you didn't understand me, Master Copperfield,' resumed Uriah in the same officious manner, "'I may take the liberty of humbly mentioning, being among friends, that I have called Dr. Strong's attention to the goings-on of Mrs. Strong. It is much against the grain with me, I assure you, Copperfield, to be concerned in anything so unpleasant. But really, as it is, we're all mixing ourselves up we were oughtn't to be. That was what my meaning was, sir, when you didn't understand me. I wonder now, when I recall his leer, that I did not collar him and try to shake the breath out of his body. I dare say I didn't make myself very clear, he went on, no you neither. Naturally, we was both of us inclined to give such a subject a wide berth. Howsoever, at last I have made up my mind to speak plain, and I have mentioned to Dr. Strong that—did you speak, sir? This was to the doctor, who had moaned. The sound might have touched any heart, I thought, but it had no effect upon Uriah's. Mention to Dr. Strong, he proceeded, that anyone may see that Mr. Molden and the lovely and agreeable lady as is Dr. Strong's wife are two sweets on one another. Really, the time is come, we being at present all mixing ourselves up with what oughtn't to be, when Dr. Strong must be told that this was full as plain to everybody as the sun, before Mr. Molden went to India, that Mr. Molden made excuses to come back for nothing else, and that he's always here for nothing else. 
when you come in sir i was just putting it to my fellow partner towards whom he turned to say to dr strong upon his word and honour whether he'd ever been of this opinion long ago or not come mr wickfield sir would you be so good as to tell us yes or no sir come partner for god's sake my dear doctor said mr wickfield again laying his irresolute hand upon the doctor's arm don't attach too much weight to any suspicions i may have entertained there cried uriah shaking his head what a melancholy confirmation ain't it him such an old friend bless your soul when i was nothing but a clerk in his office copperfield i've seen him twenty times if i've seen him once quite in a taking about it quite put out you know and very proper in him as a father i'm sure i can't blame him to think that agnes was mixing herself up in what oughtn't to be my dear strong said mr wickfield in a tremulous voice my good friend i needn't tell you that it has been my vice to look for some one master motive in everybody and to try all actions by one narrow test i may have fallen into such doubts as i have had through this mistake you have had doubts wickfield said the doctor without lifting up his head you have had doubts speak up fellow partner urged uriah i had that one time certainly said mr wickfield i god forgive me i thought you had no 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 returned the doctor in a tone of most pathetic grief i thought at one time said mr wickfield that you wished to send mr maldon abroad to effect a desirable separation no 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 returned the doctor to give annie pleasure by making some provision for the companion of her childhood nothing else so i found said mr wickfield i couldn't doubt it when you told me so but i thought i implore you to remember the narrow construction which has been my besetting sin that in a case where there was so much disparity in point of years that's the way to put it you see master copperfield observed uriah with fawning and offensive pity a lady of such youth and such attractions however real her respect for you might have been influenced in marrying by worldly considerations only i make no allowance for innumerable feelings and circumstances that may have all tended to good for heaven's sake remember that how kind he puts it said uriah shaking his head always observing her from one point of view said mr wickfield but by all that is dear to you my old friend i entreat you to consider what it was i am forced to confess now having no escape no there is no way out of it mr wickfield sir observed uriah when it's got to this that i did said mr wickfield glancing helplessly and distractedly at his partner that i did doubt her and think her wanting in her duty to you and that i did sometimes if i must say all feel averse to agnes being in such a familiar relation towards her as to see what i saw or in my diseased theory fancied what i saw i never mentioned this to any one i never meant it to be known to any one and though it is terrible to you to hear said mr wickfield quite subdued if you knew how terrible it is for me to tell you would feel compassion for me the doctor in the perfect goodness of his nature put out his hand mr wickfield held it for a little while in his with his head bowed down i am sure said uriah writhing himself into the silence like a conger eel that this is a subject full of unpleasantness to everybody but since we have got so far i ought to take the liberty of mentioning that copperfield has noticed it too i turned upon him and asked him how he dared to refer to me oh it's very kind of you copperfield returned uriah 
undulating all over, and we all know what an amiable character yours is, but you know that the moment I spoke to you the other night you knew what I meant. You know you knew what I meant, Copperfield. Don't deny it. You deny it with the best intentions, but don't do it, Copperfield.' I saw the mild eye of the good old doctor turned upon me for a moment, and I felt that the confession of my old misgivings and remembrances was all too plainly written in my face to be overlooked. It was of no use raging. I could not undo that. Say what I would, I could not unsay it. We were again silent, and remained so, until the doctor rose and walked twice or thrice across the room. Presently he returned to where his chair stood, and, leaning on the back of it, and occasionally putting his handkerchief to his eyes with a simple honesty that did him more honour, to my thinking, than any disguise he could have effected, said, "'I have been much to blame. I believe I have been very much to blame. I have exposed one whom I hold in my heart to trials and aspersions. I call them aspersions, even to have been conceived in anybody's inmost mind, of which he never but for me could have been the object.' Uriah Heep gave a kind of snivel, I think, to express sympathy. "'Of which my Annie,' said the doctor, "'never but for me could have been the object. Gentlemen, I am old now, as you know. I do not feel to-night that I have much to live for. But my life, my life, upon the truth and honour of the dear lady who has been the subject of this conversation.' I do not think that the best embodiment of chivalry, the realisation of the handsomest and most romantic figure ever imagined by painter, could have said this with a more impressive and affecting dignity than the plain old doctor did. But I am not prepared, he went on, to deny, perhaps I may have been without knowing it in some degree prepared to admit, that I may have unwittingly ensnared that lady into an unhappy marriage. I am a man quite unaccustomed to observe, and I cannot but believe that the observation of several people of different ages and positions, all too plainly tending in one direction, and that so natural, is better than mine. I have often admired, as I have elsewhere described, his benignant manner towards his youthful wife, but the respectful tenderness he manifested in every reference to her on this occasion, and the almost reverential manner in which he put away from him the lightest doubt of her integrity, exalted him in my eyes beyond description. "'I married that lady,' said the doctor, when she was extremely young. I took her to myself when her character was scarcely formed. So far as it was developed, it had been my happiness to form it. I knew her father well, I knew her well. I had thought her what I could, for the love of all her beautiful and virtuous qualities. If I did her wrong, as I fear I did in taking advantage, but I never meant it, of her gratitude and her affection, I asked pardon of that lady in my heart. He walked across the room and came back to the same place, holding the chair with a grasp that trembled like a subdued voice in its earnestness. I regarded myself as a refuge for her, from the dangers and vicissitudes of life. I persuaded myself that, unequal though we were in years, she would live tranquilly and contentedly with me. I did not shut out of my consideration the time when I should leave her free, and still young and still beautiful, but with her judgment more matured, no gentleman, upon my truth. His homely figure seemed to be lightened up by his fidelity and generosity. Every word he uttered had a force that no other grace could have imparted to it. My life with this lady has been very happy. Until to-night I have had uninterrupted occasion to bless the day on which I did her great injustice. His voice, more and more faltering in the utterance of these words, stopped for a few moments. Then he went on. 
Once awakened from my dream, I have been a poor dreamer in one way or other all my life, I see how natural it is that she should have some regretful feeling towards her old companion and her equal, that she does regard him with some innocent regret, with some blameless thoughts of what might have been but for me, is, I fear, too true. Much that I have seen but not noted has come back upon me with new meaning during this last trying hour, but beyond this gentleman the dear lady's name must never be coupled with a word, a breath of doubt. For a little while his eye kindled and his voice was firm. For a little while he was again silent. Presently he proceeded as before. It only remains for me to bear the knowledge of the unhappiness I have occasioned, as submissively as I can. It is she who should reproach, not I. To save her from misconstruction, cruel misconstruction, that even my friends have not been able to avoid, becomes my duty. The more retired we live, the better I shall discharge it, and when the time comes, may it come soon, if it be his merciful pleasure, when my death shall release her from constraint, I shall close my eyes upon her honoured face with unbounded confidence and love, and leave her, with no sorrow then, to happier and brighter days. I could not see him for the tears which his earnestness and goodness, so adorned by and so adorning, the perfect simplicity of his manner, brought into my eyes. He had moved to the door when he added, "'Gentlemen, I have shown you my heart. I am sure you will respect it. What we have said to-night is never to be said more. Wickfield, give me an old friend's arm upstairs.' Mr. Wickfield hastened to him. Without interchanging a word, they went slowly out of the room together, Uriah looking after them. "'Well, Master Copperfield,' said Uriah, meekly turning to me, "'the thing hasn't quite took the turn that might have been expected. For the old scholar, what an excellent man, is as blind as a brickbat, but this family's out of the cart, I think.' I needed but the sound of his voice to be so madly enraged as I never was before, and never have been since. "'You villain!' said I. "'What do you mean by entrapping me into your schemes? "'Now dare you appeal to me just now, you false rascal, "'as if we had been in discussion together?' "'As we stood front to front, "'I saw so plainly in the stealthy exultation of his face "'what I already so plainly knew. "'I mean, that he forced his confidence upon me, "'expressly to make me miserable, "'and had set a deliberate trap for me in this very matter, "'that I couldn't bear it. "'The whole of his lank cheek was invitingly before me, "'and I struck it with my open hand, with that force, that my fingers tingled as if I had burnt them. He caught the hand in his, and we stood in that connection, looking at each other. We stood so a long time, long enough for me to see the white marks of my fingers die out of the deep red of his cheek, and leave it a deeper red. "'Copperfield,' he said at length, in a breathless voice, "'have you taken leave of your senses?' "'I've taken leave of you,' said I, resting my hand away. "'You dog! I will know no more of you.' "'Won't you?' said he, constrained by the pain of his cheek to put his hand there. "'Perhaps you won't be able to help it. Isn't this ungrateful of you now?' "'I have shown you often enough,' said I, "'that I despise you. I have shown you now more plainly that I do. Why should I dread your doing your worst to all about you? What else do you ever do?' He perfectly understood this allusion to the considerations that had hitherto restrained me in my communications with him. I rather think that neither the blow nor the illusion would have escaped me but for the assurance I had had from Agnes that night. It is no matter. There was another long pause. His eyes, as he looked at me, seemed to take every shade of colour that could make eyes ugly. Copperfield, he said, removing his hand from his cheek, 
You have always gone against me. I know you always used to be against me at Mr. Wickfield's. You may think what you like, said I, still in a towering rage. If it is not true, so much the worthier you. And yet I always liked you, Copperfield, he rejoined. I designed to make him no reply, and, taking up my hat, was going out to bed, when he came between me and the door. Copperfield, he said, there must be two parties to a quarrel. I won't be one. You may go to the devil, said I. Don't say that, he replied. I know you'll be sorry afterwards. How can you make yourself so inferior to me as to show such a bad spirit? But I forgive you. You forgive me, I repeated disdainfully. I do, and you can't help yourself, replied Uriah, to think of your going and attacking me that have always been a friend to you. But there can't be a quarrel without two parties, and I won't be one. I will be a friend to you, in spite of you. So now you know what you've got to expect. The necessity of carrying on this dialogue, his part in which was very slow, mine very quick, in a low tone, that the house might not be disturbed at an unseasonable hour, did not improve my temper, though my passion was cooling down. Merely telling him that I should expect from him what I always expected, and had never yet been disappointed in, I opened the door upon him as if he had been a great walnut put there to be cracked, and went out of the house. But he slept out of the house too, at his mother's lodging, and before I had gone many hundred yards, came up with me. "'You know, Copperfield,' he said in my ear, I did not turn my head, "'you are quite in a wrong position.' which I felt to be true, and that made me chafe the more. You can't make this a brave thing, and you can't help being forgiven. I don't intend to mention it to mother, nor to any living soul. I'm determined to forgive you. But I do wonder that you should lift your hand against a person that you knew to be so humble. I felt only less mean than he. He knew me better than I knew myself. If he had retorted or openly exasperated me, it would have been a relief and a justification but he had put me on a slow fire on which i lay tormented half the night in the morning when i came out the early church bell was ringing and he was walking up and down with his mother he addressed me as if nothing had happened and i could do no less than reply i had struck him hard enough to give him the toothache i suppose at all events his face was tied up in a black silk handkerchief which with his hat perched on top of it was far from improving his appearance I heard that he went to the dentist's in London on the Monday morning, and had a tooth out. I hope it was a double one. The doctor gave out that he was not quite well, and remained alone for a considerable part of every day, during the remainder of the visit. Agnes and her father had been gone a week before we resumed our usual work. On the day preceding its resumption, the doctor gave me, with his own hands, a folded note, not sealed. It was addressed to myself, and laid an injunction on me, in a few affectionate words, never to refer to the subject of that evening. I had confided it to my aunt, but to no one else. It was not a subject I could discuss with Agnes, and Agnes certainly had not the least suspicion of what had passed. Neither, I felt convinced, had Mrs. Strong then. Several weeks elapsed before I saw the least change in her. It came on slowly, like a cloud when there is no wind. At first she seemed to wonder at the gentle compassion with which the doctor spoke to her, and at his wish that she should have her mother with her to relieve the dull monotony of her life. Often, when we were at work, and she was sitting by, I would see her pausing and looking at him with that memorable face. Afterwards I sometimes observed her rise with her eyes full of tears and go out of the room. Gradually an unhappy shadow fell upon her beauty, and deepened every day. 
Mrs. Markleham was a regular inmate of the cottage then, but she talked and talked and saw nothing. As this change stole on Annie, once like sunshine in the doctor's house, the doctor became older in appearance and more grave. But the sweetness of his temper, the placid kindness of his manner, and his benevolent solicitude for her, if they were capable of any increase, were increased. I saw him once, early on the morning of her birthday, when she came to sit in the window while we were at work, which he had always done, but now began to do with a timid and uncertain air that I thought very touching, take her forehead between his hands, kiss it, and go hurriedly away, too much moved to remain. I saw her stand there when he had left her like a statue, and then bend down her head and clasp her hands and weep, I cannot say how sorrowfully. Sometimes after that I fancy that she tried to speak even to me, in intervals when we were left alone, but she never uttered a word. The doctor always had some new project for her participating in amusements away from home with her mother, and Mrs. Markleham, who was very fond of amusements, and very easily dissatisfied with anything else, entered into them with great good will, and was loud in her commendations. But Annie, in a spiritless, unhappy way, only went whither she was led, and seemed to have no care for anything. I did not know what to think. Neither did my aunt, who must have walked at various times a hundred miles in her uncertainty. What was strangest of all was, that the only real relief which seemed to make its way into the secret region of this domestic unhappiness made its way there in the person of Mr. Dick. What his thoughts were on the subject, or what his observation was, I am as unable to explain as I dare say he would have been to assist me in the task, but, as I have recorded in the narrative of my school-days, his veneration for the doctor was unbounded, and there is a subtlety of perception in real attachment, even when it is borne towards man by one of the lower animals, which leaves the highest intellect behind. To this mind of the heart, if I may call it so, in Mr. Dick, some bright ray of the truth shot straight. He had proudly resumed his privilege, in many of his spare hours, of walking up and down the garden with the doctor, as he had been accustomed to pace up and down the doctor's walk at Canterbury. But matters were no sooner in this state than he devoted all his spare time, and got up earlier to make it more, to these perambulations. If he had never been so happy as when the doctor read that marvellous performance, the dictionary, to him, he was now quite miserable unless the doctor pulled it out of his pocket and began. When the doctor and I were engaged, he now fell into the custom of walking up and down with Mrs. Strong, and helping her to trim her favourite flowers or weed the beds. I dare say he rarely spoke a dozen words in an hour, but his quiet interest and his wistful face found immediate response in both their breasts. Each knew that the other liked him, and that he loved both, and he became what no one else could be, a link between them. When I think of him, with his impenetrably wise face, walking up and down with the doctor, delighted to be battered by the hard words in the dictionary, when I think of him carrying huge watering-pots after Annie, kneeling down, in very paws of gloves, at patient microscopic work among the little leaves, expressing, as no philosopher could have expressed in everything he did, a delicate desire to be her friend, showering sympathy, trustfulness, and affection out of every hole in the watering-pot when i think of him never wandering in that better mind of his to which unhappiness addressed itself never bringing the unfortunate king charles into the garden never wavering in his grateful service never diverted from his knowledge that there was something wrong or from his wish to set it right i really feel almost ashamed of having known that he was not quite in his wits taking account of the utmost i have done with mine 
nobody but myself trot knows what that man is my aunt would proudly remark when we conversed about it dick will distinguish himself yet i must refer to one other topic before i close this chapter while the visit at the doctor's was still in progress i observed that the postman brought two or three letters every morning for uriah heep who remained at highgate until the rest went back it being a leisure time and that these were always directed in a business-like manner by mr micawber who now assumed a round legal hand i was glad to infer from these slight premises that mr micawber was doing well and consequently was much surprised to receive about this time the following letter from his amiable wife canterbury monday evening you will doubtless be surprised my dear mr copperfield to receive this communication still more so by its contents still more so by the stipulation of implicit confidence which i beg to impose but my feelings as a wife and mother require relief and as i do not wish to consult my family already obnoxious to the feelings of mr micawber i know no one of whom i can better ask advice than my friend and former lodger you may be aware my dear mr copperfield that between myself and mr micawber whom i will never desert there has always been preserved a spirit of mutual confidence mr micawber may have occasionally given a bill without consulting me or he may have misled me as to the period when that obligation would become due this has actually happened but in general mr micawber has had no secrets from the bosom of his affection i allude to his wife and has invariably on our retirement to rest recalled the events of the day you will picture to yourself my dear mr copperfield what the poignancy of my feelings must be when i inform you that mr micawber is entirely changed he is reserved he is secret his life is a mystery to the partner of his joys and sorrows i again allude to his wife and if i should assure you that beyond knowing that it is passed from morning to night at the office i now know less of it than i do of the man in the south connected with whose mouth the thoughtless children repeat an idle tale respecting cold plum porridge i should adopt the popular fallacy to express an actual fact but this is not all mr micawber is morose he is severe he is estranged from our eldest son and daughter he has no pride in his twins he looks with an eye of coldness even on the unoffending stranger who last became a member of our circle the pecuniary means of meeting our expenses kept down to the utmost farthing are obtained from him with great difficulty and even under fearful threats that he will settle himself the exact expression and he inexorably refuses to give any explanation whatever of this distracting policy this is hard to bear this is heart-breaking if you will advise me knowing my feeble powers such as they are how you think it will be best to exert them in a dilemma so unwanted you will add another friendly obligation to the money you have already rendered me with loves from the children and a smile from the happily unconscious stranger i remain dear mr copperfield your afflicted emma micawber i did not feel justified in giving a wife of mrs micawber's experience any other recommendation than that she should try to reclaim mr micawber by patience and kindness as i knew she would in any case but the letter set me thinking about him very much End of chapter forty two Chapter forty three of David Copperfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ty Kynes. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty three. Another retrospect. Once again, let me pause upon a memorable period of my life.
let me stand aside to see the phantoms of those days go by me accompanying the shadows of myself in dim procession weeks months seasons pass along they seem little more than a summer day and a winter evening now the common where i walk with dora is all in bloom a field of bright gold and now the unseen heather lies in mounds and bunches underneath the covering of snow in a breath the river that flows through our sunday walks is sparkling in the summer sun is ruffled by the winter wind or thickened with drifting heaps of ice faster than ever river ran towards the sea it flashes darkens and rolls away not a thread changes in the house of the two little bird-like ladies the clock ticks over the fireplace the weather-glass hangs in the hall neither clock nor weather-glass is ever right but we believe in both devoutly i have come legally to man's estate i have attained the dignity of twenty-one but this is a sort of dignity that may be thrust upon one let me think what i have achieved i have tamed that savage stenographic mystery i make a respectable income by it i am in high repute for my accomplishment in all pertaining to the art and am joined with eleven others in reporting the debates in parliament for a morning newspaper night after night i record predictions that never come to pass professions that are never fulfilled explanations that are only meant to mystify i wallow in words britannia that unfortunate female is always before me like a trussed fowl skewered through and through with office pens and bound hand and foot with red tape i am sufficiently behind the scenes to know the worth of political life i am quite an infidel about it and shall never be converted my dear old traddles has tried his hand at the same pursuit but it is not in traddles's way he is perfectly good-humoured respecting his failure and reminds me that he always did consider himself slow he has occasional employment on the same newspaper in getting up the facts of dry subjects to be written about and embellished by more fertile minds he is called to the bar and with admirable industry and self-denial has scraped another hundred pounds together to see a conveyancer whose chamber he attends a great deal of very hot port wine was consumed at his call and considering the figure i should think the inner temple must have made a profit by it i have come out in another way i have taken with fear and trembling to authorship i wrote a little something in secret and sent it to a magazine and it was published in the magazine since then i have taken heart to write a good many trifling pieces now i am regularly paid for them altogether i am well off when i tell my income on the fingers of my left hand i pass the third finger and take in the fourth to the middle joint we have removed from buckingham street to a pleasant little cottage very near the one i looked at when my enthusiasm first came on my aunt however who has sold the house at dover to good advantage is not going to remain there but intends moving herself to a still more tiny cottage close at hand what does this portend my marriage yes yes i am going to be married to dora miss lavinia and miss clarissa have given their consent and if ever canary birds were in a flutter they are miss lavinia self-charged with the superintendence of my darling's wardrobe is constantly cutting out brown paper cuirasses and differing in opinion from a highly respectable young man with a long bundle and a yard measure under his arm a dressmaker always stabbed in the breast with a needle and thread boards and lodges in the house and seems to me eating drinking or sleeping never to take her thimble off 
They make a lay figure of my dear. They are always sending for her to come and try something on. We can't be happy together for five minutes in the evening, but some intrusive female knocks at the door and says, Oh, if you please, Miss Dora, would you step upstairs? Miss Clarissa and my aunt roam all over London to find out articles of furniture for Dora and me to look at. It would be better for them to buy the goods at once, without this ceremony of inspection, for when we go to see a kitchen fender and meat-screen, Dora sees a Chinese house for Jip, with little bells on the top, and prefers that, and it takes a long time to accustom Jip to his new residence after we have bought it. Whenever he goes in or out, he makes all the little bells ring, and is horribly frightened. Peggotty comes to make herself useful, and falls to work immediately. Her department appears to be to clean everything over and over again. She rubs everything that can be rubbed until it shines, like her own honest forehead, with perpetual friction, and now it is that I begin to see her solitary brother passing through the dark streets at night, and looking as he goes among the wandering faces. I never speak to him at such an hour. I know too well, as his grave figure passes onward, what he seeks and what he dreads. Why does Traddles look so important when he calls upon me this afternoon in the Commons, where I still occasionally attend for form's sake when I have time? The realisation of my boyish daydream is at hand. I am going to take out the licence. It is a little document to do so much, and Traddles contemplates it as it lies upon my desk, half in admiration, half in awe. There are the names in the sweet old visionary connection. David Copperfield and Dora Spenlow, and there, in the corner, is that parental institution, the Stamp Office, which is so benignantly interested in the various transactions of human life, looking down upon our union, and there is the Archbishop of Canterbury invoking a blessing on us in print, and doing it as cheap as could possibly be expected. Nevertheless, I am in a dream, a flustered, happy, hurried dream i can't believe that it is going to be and yet i can't believe but that everyone i pass in the street must have some kind of perception that i am to be married the day after to-morrow the surrogate knows me when i go down to be sworn and disposes of me easily as if there were a masonic understanding between us traddles is not at all wanted but is in attendance as my general backer i hope the next time you come here my dear fellow i say to traddles it will be on the same errand for yourself and i hope it will be soon "'Thank you for your good wishes, my dear Copperfield,' he replies. "'I hope so, too. It is a satisfaction to know that she'll wait for me any length of time, and that she really is the dearest girl.' "'When are you to meet her at the coach?' I ask. "'At seven, says Traddles, looking at his plain old silver watch, the very watch he once took a wheel out of at school to make a water-mill. "'That is about Miss Wickfield's time, is it not?' "'A little earlier. Her time is half-past eight. "'I assure you, my dear boy,' says Traddles, "'I am almost as pleased as if I were going to be married myself "'to think that this event is coming to such a happy termination. "'And really the great friendship and consideration "'of personally associating Sophie with the joyful occasion "'and inviting her to be a bridesmaid in conjunction with Miss Wickfield "'demands my warmest thanks. "'I am extremely sensible of it. "'I hear him and shake hands with him, "'and we talk and walk and dine and so on, "'but I don't believe it. Nothing is real.' Sophie arrives at the house of Dora's aunts in due course. She has the most agreeable of faces, not absolutely beautiful, but extraordinarily pleasant, and is one of the most genial, unaffected, frank, engaging creatures I have ever seen. Traddles presents her to us with great pride, and rubs his hands for ten minutes by the clock with every individual hair upon his head standing on tiptoe when I congratulate him in a corner on his choice. 
I have brought Agnes from the Canterbury coach, and her cheerful and beautiful face is among us for the second time. Agnes has a great liking for Traddles, and it is capital to see them meet and to observe the glory of Traddles as he commends the dearest girl in the world to her acquaintance. Still I don't believe it. We have a delightful evening and are supremely happy, but I don't believe it yet. I can't collect myself. I can't check off my happiness as it takes place. I feel in a misty and unsettled kind of state, as if I had got up very early in the morning a week or two ago, and had never been to bed since. I can't make out when yesterday was. I seem to have been carrying the license about in my pocket many months. Next day, too, when we all go in a flock to see the house, our house, Dora's and mine, I am quite unable to regard myself as its master. I seem to be there by permission of somebody else. I half expect the real master to come home presently and say he is glad to see me. Such a beautiful little house as it is, with everything so bright and new, with the flowers on the carpets looking as if freshly gathered, and the green leaves on the paper as if they had just come out with the spotless muslin curtains and the blushing rose-coloured furniture and dora's garden hat with the blue ribbon do i remember now how i loved her in such another hat when i first knew her already hanging on its little peg the guitar-case quite at home on its heels in a corner and everybody tumbling over jip's pagoda which is much too big for the establishment another happy evening quite as unreal as all the rest of it and i steal into the usual room before going away Dora is not there. I suppose they must not have done trying on yet. Miss Lavinia peeps in and tells me mysteriously that she will not be long. She is rather long notwithstanding, but by and by I hear a rustling at the door, and someone taps. I say, come in, but someone taps again. I go to the door, wondering who it is. There I meet a pair of bright eyes and a blushing face. They are Dora's eyes and face, and Miss Lavinia has dressed her in tomorrow's dress, bonnet and all, for me to see. I take my little wife to my heart, and Miss Lavinia gives a little scream because I tumble the bonnet, and Dora laughs and cries at once because I am so pleased, and I believe it less than ever. Do you think it pretty, Dodie? says Dora. Pretty? I should rather think I did. And are you sure you like me very much? says Dora. The topic is fraught with such danger to the bonnet that Miss Lavinia gives another little scream and begs me to understand that Dora is only to be looked at and on no account to be touched. So Dora stands in a delightful state of confusion for a minute or two to be admired and then takes off her bonnet, looking so natural without it, and runs away with it in her hand and comes dancing down again in her own familiar dress and asks Jip if I have got a beautiful little wife and whether they forgive her for being married and kneels down to make him stand upon the cookery book for the last time in her single life. I go home more incredulous than ever, to a lodging that I have hard by, and get up very early in the morning to ride to the Highgate Road and fetch my aunt. I have never seen my aunt in such state. She is dressed in lavender-coloured silk, and has a white bonnet on, and is amazing. Janet has dressed her, and is there to look at me. Peggotty is ready to go to church, intending to behold the ceremony from the gallery. Mr. Dick, who is to give my darling to me at the altar, has had his hair curled. Traddles, who I have taken up by appointment at the turnpike, presents a dazzling combination of cream colour and light blue, and both he and Mr. Dick have a general effect about them of being all gloves. 
no doubt i see this because i know it is so but i am astray and seem to see nothing nor do i believe anything whatever still as we drive along in an open carriage this fairy marriage is real enough to fill me with a sort of wondering pity for the unfortunate people who have no part in it but are sweeping out the shops and going to their daily occupations my aunt sits with my hand in hers all the way when we stop a little way short of the church to put down peggotty whom we have brought on the box she gives it a squeeze and me a kiss god bless you trot my own boy could never be dearer i think of poor baby this morning so do i and of all i owe to you dear aunt tut child says my aunt and gives her hand in overflowing cordiality to traddles who then gives his to mr dick who then gives his to me who then gives mine to traddles and then we come to the church the church is calm enough i am sure but it might be a steam-power loom in full action for any sedative effect it has on me i am too far gone for that the rest is all a more or less incoherent dream a dream of their coming in with dora of the pew-opener arranging us like a drill-sergeant before the altar-rails of my wondering even then why pew-openers must always be the most disagreeable females procurable and whether there is any religious dread of a disastrous infection of good-humour which renders it indispensable to set those vessels of vinegar upon the road to heaven of the clergyman and clerk appearing of a few boatmen and some other people strolling in of an ancient mariner behind me strongly flavouring the church with rum of the service beginning in a deep voice and of our all being very attentive of miss lavinia who acts as a semi-auxiliary bridesmaid being the first to cry and of her doing homage as i take it to the memory of pidger in sobs of miss clarissa applying a smelling-bottle of agnes taking care of dora of my aunt endeavouring to represent herself as a model of sternness with tears rolling down her face of little dora trembling very much and making her responses in faint whispers of our kneeling down together side by side of dora's trembling less and less but always clasping agnes by the hand of the service being got through quietly and gravely of our all looking at each other in an april state of smiles and tears when it is over of my young wife being hysterical in the vestry and crying for her poor papa her dear papa of her soon cheering up again and our signing the register all round of my going into the gallery for peggotty to bring her to sign it of peggotty hugging me in a corner and telling me she saw my own dear mother married of its being over and our going away of my walking so proudly and lovingly down the aisle with my sweet wife upon my arm through a mist of half-seen people pulpits monuments pews fonts organs and church windows in which there flutter faint airs of association with my childish church at home so long ago of their whispering as we pass what a youthful couple we are and what a pretty little wife she is of our all being so merry and talkative in the carriage going back of sophie telling us that when she saw traddles whom i had entrusted with a license ask for it she almost fainted having been convinced that he would contrive to lose it or to have his pocket picked of agnes laughing gaily and of dora being so fond of agnes that she will not be separated from her but still keeps her hand 
of there being a breakfast with abundance of things pretty and substantial to eat and drink whereof i partake as i should do in any other dream without the least perception of their flavour eating and drinking as i may say nothing but love and marriage and no more believing in the viands than in anything else of making a speech in the same dreamy fashion without having an idea of what i want to say beyond such as may be comprehended in the full conviction that i haven't said it of our being very sociable and simply happy always in a dream though and of chips having wedding cake and its not agreeing with him afterwards of the pair of hired post-horses being ready and of dora's going away to change her dress of my aunt and miss clarissa remaining with us and our walking in the garden and my aunt who has made quite a speech at breakfast touching dora's aunts being mightily amused with herself but a little proud of it too of Dora's being ready, and of Miss Lavinia's hovering about her, loath to lose the pretty toy which has given her so much pleasant occupation. Of Dora's making a long series of surprise discoveries that she has forgotten all sorts of little things, and of everybody's running everywhere to fetch them. Of their all closing about Dora when at last she begins to say good-bye, looking with her bright colours and ribbons like a bed of flowers. Of my darling being almost smothered among the flowers, and coming out laughing and crying both together to my jealous arms. Of my wanting to carry Jip, who is to go along with us, and Dora saying no, that she must carry him, or else he thinks she don't like him any more now she is married, and will break his heart of our going arm in arm and dora stopping and looking back and saying if i have ever been cross or ungrateful to anybody don't remember it and bursting into tears of her waving her little hand and our going away once more of her once more stopping and looking back and hurrying to agnes and giving agnes above all the others her last kisses and farewells we drive away together and i awake from the dream i believe it at last it is my dear dear little wife beside me whom i love so well are you happy now you foolish boy says dora and sure you don't repent i have stood aside to see the phantoms of those days go by me they are gone and i resume the journey of my story End of chapter forty three Chapter forty four of David Copperfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyke Hines. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty four. Our housekeeping. It was a strange condition of things, the honeymoon being over and the bridesmaids gone home, when I found myself sitting down in my small house with Dora quite thrown out of employment as i may say in respect of the delicious old occupation of making love it seemed such an extraordinary thing to have dora always there it was so unaccountable not to be obliged to go out to see her not to have any occasion to be tormenting myself about her not to have to write to her not to be scheming and devising opportunities of being alone with her sometimes of an evening when i looked up from my writing and saw her seated opposite i would lean back in my chair and think how queer it was that there we were alone together as a matter of course nobody's business any more all the romance of our engagement put away upon a shelf to rust no one to please but one another one another to please for life when there was a debate and i was kept out very late it seemed so strange to me as i was walking home to think that dora was at home 
it was such a wonderful thing at first to have her come softly down to talk to me as i ate my supper it was such a stupendous thing to know for certain that she put her hair in papers it was altogether such an astonishing event to see her do it i doubt whether two young birds could have known less about keeping house than i and my pretty dora did we had a servant of course she kept house for us i have still a latent belief that she must have been mrs crupp's daughter in disguise we had such an awful time of it with mary ann her name was paragon her nature was represented to us when we engaged her as being feebly expressed in her name she had a written character as large as a proclamation and according to this document could do everything of a domestic nature that ever i heard of and a great many things i never did hear of she was a woman in the prime of life of a severe countenance and subject particularly in the arms to a sort of perpetual measles or fiery rash she had a cousin in the lifeguards with such long legs that he looked like the afternoon shadow of somebody else his shell-jacket was as much too little for him as he was too big for the premises he made the cottage smaller than it need have been by being so very much out of proportion to it besides which the walls were not thick and whenever he passed the evening at our house we always knew of it by hearing one continual growl in the kitchen our treasure was warranted sober and honest i am therefore willing to believe that she was in a fit when we found her under the boiler and that the deficient teaspoons were attributable to the dustman but she preyed upon our minds dreadfully we felt our inexperience and were unable to help ourselves we should have been at her mercy if she had had any but she was a remorseless woman and had none she was the cause of our first little quarrel my dearest life said i one day to dora do you think mary ann has any idea of time why dodie inquired dora looking up innocently from her drawing my love because it's five and we were to have dined at four dora glanced wistfully at the clock and hinted that she thought it was too fast on the contrary my love said i referring to my watch it's a few minutes too slow my little wife came and sat upon my knee to coax me to be quiet and drew a line with her pencil down the middle of my nose but i couldn't dine off that though it was very agreeable don't you think my dear said i it would be better for you to remonstrate with mary ann oh no please i couldn't dodie said dora why not my love i gently asked oh because i am such a little goose said dora and she knows i am i thought this sentiment so incompatible with the establishment of my system of check on mary ann that i frowned a little oh what ugly wrinkles in my bad boy's forehead said dora and still being on my knee she traced them with her pencil putting it to her rosy lips to make it mark blacker and working at my forehead with a quaint little mockery of being industrious that quite delighted me in spite of myself there's a good child said dora it makes its face so much prettier to laugh but my love said i no no please cried dora with a kiss don't be a naughty bluebeard don't be serious my precious wife said i we must be serious sometimes come sit down on this chair close beside me give me the pencil there now let us talk sensibly you know dear what a little hand it was to hold and what a tiny wedding ring it was to see you know my love it is not exactly comfortable to have to go out without one's dinner now is it no replied dora faintly my love how you tremble 
because i know you are going to scold me exclaimed dora in a piteous voice my sweet i am only going to reason oh but reasoning is worse than scolding exclaimed dora in despair i didn't marry to be reasoned with if you meant to reason with such a poor little thing as i am you ought to have told me so you cruel boy i tried to pacify dora but she turned away her face and shook her curls from side to side and said you cruel cruel boy so many times that i really did not exactly know what to do so i took a few turns up and down the room in my uncertainty and came back again dora my darling no i am not your darling because you must be sorry that you married me or else you wouldn't reason with me returned dora i felt so injured by the inconsequential nature of this charge that it gave me courage to be grave now my dora said i you are very childish and you are talking nonsense you must remember i am sure that i was obliged to go out yesterday when dinner was half over and that the day before i was made quite unwell by being obliged to eat underdone veal in a hurry to-day i don't dine at all and i am afraid to say how long we waited for breakfast and then the water didn't boil i don't mean to reproach you my dear but this is not comfortable oh you cruel cruel boy to say i am a disagreeable wife cried dora now my dear dora you must know that i never said that you said i wasn't comfortable cried dora i said the housekeeping was not comfortable it's exactly the same thing cried dora and she evidently thought so for she wept most grievously i took another turn across the room full of love for my pretty wife and distracted by self-accusatory inclinations to knock my head against the door i sat down again and said i am not blaming you dora we have both a great deal to learn i am only trying to show you my dear that you must you really must i was resolved not to give this up accustom yourself to look after mary ann likewise to act a little for yourself and me i wonder i do at your making such ungrateful speeches sobbed dora when you know that the other day when you said you would like a little bit of fish i went out myself miles and miles and ordered it to surprise you and it was very kind of you my own darling said i i felt it so much that i wouldn't on any account even have mentioned that you bought a salmon which was too much for two or that it cost one pound six which is more than we can afford <laughs> you enjoyed it very much sobbed dora and said i was a mouse and i'll say so again my love i returned a thousand times but i had wounded dora's soft little heart and she was not to be comforted she was so pathetic in her sobbing and bewailing that i felt as if i had said i don't know what to hurt her i was obliged to hurry away i was kept out late and i felt all night such pangs of remorse as made me miserable i had the conscience of an assassin and was haunted by a vague sense of enormous wickedness it was two or three hours past midnight when i got home i found my aunt in our house sitting up for me is anything the matter aunt said i alarmed nothing trot she replied sit down sit down little blossom has been rather out of spirits and i have been keeping her company that's all i leaned my head upon my hand and felt more sorry and downcast as i sat looking at the fire than i could have supposed possible so soon after the fulfilment of my brightest hopes as i sat thinking i happened to meet my aunt's eyes which were resting on my face there was an anxious expression in them but it cleared directly i assure you aunt said i i have been quite unhappy myself all night to think of dora being so but i had no other intention than to speak to her tenderly and lovingly about our home affairs my aunt nodded encouragement 
you must have patience trot said she of course heaven knows i don't mean to be unreasonable aunt no no said my aunt but little blossom is a very tender little blossom and the wind must be gentle with her i thanked my good aunt in my heart for her tenderness towards my wife and i was sure that she knew i did don't you think aunt said i after some further contemplation of the fire that you could advise and counsel dora a little for our mutual advantage now and then trot returned my aunt with some emotion no don't ask me such a thing her tone was so very earnest that i raised my eyes in surprise i look back upon my life child said my aunt and i think of some who are in their graves with whom i might have been on kinder terms if i judged harshly of other people's mistakes in marriage it may have been because i had bitter reason to judge harshly of my own let it pass i have been a grumpy frumpy wayward sort of a woman a good many years i am still and i always shall be but you and i have done one another some good trot at all events you have done me good my dear and division must not come between us at this time of day division between us cried i child child said my aunt smoothing her dress how soon it might come between us or how unhappy i might make our little blossom if i meddled in anything a prophet couldn't say I want our pet to like me and be as gay as a butterfly remember your own home in that second marriage and never do both me and her the injury you have hinted at i comprehended at once that my aunt was right and i comprehended the full extent of her generous feeling towards my dear wife these are early days trot she pursued and rome was not built in a day nor in a year you have chosen freely for yourself a cloud passed over her face for a moment i thought and you have chosen a very pretty and a very affectionate creature it will be your duty and it will be your pleasure too of course i know that i am not delivering a lecture to estimate her as you chose her by the qualities she has and not by the qualities she may not have the latter you must develop in her if you can if you cannot child here my aunt rubbed her nose you must accustom yourself to do without em but remember my dear your future is between you two no one can assist you you are to work it out for yourselves this is marriage trot and heaven bless you both in it for a pair of babes in the wood as you are my aunt said this in a sprightly way and gave me a kiss to ratify the blessing now said she light my little lantern and see me into my bandbox by the garden path for there was a communication between our cottages in that direction give betsy trotwood's love to the blossom when you come back and whatever you do trot never dream of setting betsy up as a scarecrow for if i ever saw her in the glass she's quite grim enough and gaunt enough in her private capacity with this my aunt tied her head up in a handkerchief with which she was accustomed to make a bundle of it on such occasions and i escorted her home as she stood in her garden holding up her little lantern to light me back i thought her observation of me had an anxious air again but I was too much occupied in pondering on what she had said, and too much impressed for the first time in reality by the conviction that Dora and I had indeed to work out our future for ourselves, and that no one could assist us to take much notice of it. Dora came stealing down in her little slippers to meet me now that I was alone, and cried upon my shoulder, and said I had been hard-hearted and she had been naughty, and I said much the same thing in effect, I believe, and we made it up, and agreed that our first little difference was to be our last, and that we were never to have another if we lived a hundred years. The next domestic trial we went through was the ordeal of servants. 
Marianne's cousin deserted into our coal-hole, and was brought out, to our great amazement, by a piquet of his companions in arms, who took him away handcuffed in a procession that covered our front garden with ignominy. This nerved me to get rid of Marianne, who went so mildly on receipt of wages that I was surprised, until I found out about the teaspoons, and also about the little sum she had borrowed in my name, of the tradespeople without authority. After an interval of Mrs. Kidgerbury, the oldest inhabitant of Kentish Town, I believe, who went out charring but was too feeble to execute her conceptions of that art, we found another treasure, who was one of the most amiable of women, and who generally made a point of falling either up or down the kitchen stairs with a tray, and almost plunged into the parlour as into a bath, with her tea-things. The ravages committed by this unfortunate, rendering her dismissal necessary, she was succeeded, with intervals of Mrs. Kidgerbury, by a long line of incapables, terminating in a young person of genteel appearance, who went to Greenwich Fair in Dora's bonnet, after whom I remember nothing but an average equality of failure. Everybody we had anything to do with seemed to cheat us. Our appearance in a shop was a signal for the damaged goods to be brought out immediately. If we bought a lobster, it was full of water. All our meat turned out to be tough, and there was hardly any crust to our loaves. In search of the principle on which joints ought to be roasted, to be roasted enough and not too much, I myself referred to the cookery book, and found it there established as the allowance of quarter of an hour to every pound, and say a quarter over. But the principle always failed us by some curious fatality, and we never could hit any medium between redness and cinders. I had reason to believe that, in accomplishing these failures, we incurred a far greater expense than if we had achieved a series of triumphs. It appeared to me, on looking over the tradesmen's books, as if we might have kept the basement story paved with butter. Such was the extensive scale of our consumption of that article. I don't know whether the excise duties of the period may have exhibited any increase in the demand for pepper, but if our performances did not affect the market, I should say several families must have left off using it and the most wonderful fact of all was that we never had anything in the house as to the washerwoman pawning the clothes and coming in a state of penitent intoxication to apologise i suppose that might have happened several times to anybody also the chimney on fire the parish engine and perjury on the part of the beadle but i apprehend that we were personally fortunate in engaging a servant with a taste for cordials who swelled our running account for porter at the public-house by such inexplicable items as quartern rum-shrub mrs c quartern gin and cloves mrs c glass rum and peppermint mrs c the parenthesis always referring to dora who was supposed it appeared on explanation to have imbibed the whole of these refreshments one of our first feats in the housekeeping way was a little dinner to Traddles. I met him in town, and asked him to walk out with me that afternoon. He readily consenting, I wrote to Dora, saying I would bring him home. It was pleasant weather, and on the road we made my domestic happiness the theme of conversation. Traddles was very full of it, and said that, picturing himself with such a home, and Sophie waiting and preparing for him, he could think of nothing wanting to complete his bliss i could not have wished for a prettier little wife at the opposite end of the table but i certainly could have wished when we sat down for a little more room i did not know how it was but though there were only two of us we were at once always cramped for room and yet had always enough room to lose everything in i suspect it may have been because nothing had a place of its own except gyp's pagoda which invariably blocked up the main thoroughfare 
on the present occasion traddles was so hemmed in by the pagoda and the guitar case and dora's flower painting and my writing-table that i had serious doubts of the possibility of his using his knife and fork but he protested with his own good humour oceans of room copperfield i assure you oceans there was another thing i could have wished namely that jip had never been encouraged to walk about the tablecloth during dinner i began to think there was something disorderly in his being there at all even if he had not been in the habit of putting his foot in the salt or the melted butter on this occasion he seemed to think he was introduced expressly to keep traddles at bay and he barked at my old friend and made short runs at his plate with such undaunted pertinacity that he may be said to have engrossed the conversation however as i knew how tender-hearted my dear dora was and how sensitive she would be to any slight upon her favourite i hinted no objection for similar reasons i made no allusion to the skirmishing plates upon the floor or to the disreputable appearance of the casters which were all at sixes and sevens and looked drunk or to the further blockade of traddles by wandering vegetable dishes and jugs i could not help wondering in my own mind as i contemplated the boiled leg of mutton before me previous to carving it how it came to pass that our joints of meat were of such extraordinary shapes and whether our butcher contracted for all the deformed sheep that came into the world but i kept my reflections to myself my love i said to dora what have you got in that dish I could not imagine why Dora had been making tempting little faces at me, as if she wanted to kiss me. "'Oysters, dear,' said Dora, timidly. "'Was that your thought?' said I, delighted. "'Yes, Dodie," said Dora. "'There never was a happier one,' I exclaimed, laying down the carving-knife and fork. "'There is nothing traddles like so much.' yes doady said dora and so i bought a beautiful little barrel of them and the man said they were very good but i-i am afraid there's something the matter with them they don't seem right here dora shook her head and diamonds twinkled in her eyes they are only opened in both shells said i take the top one off my love but it won't come off said dora trying very hard and looking very much distressed do you know copperfield said traddles cheerfully examining the dish i think this is in consequence they are capital oysters but i think it is in consequence of their never having been opened they never had been opened and we had no oyster knives and couldn't have used them if we had so we looked at the oysters and ate the mutton at least we ate as much of it as was done and made up with capers if i had permitted him i am satisfied that traddles would have made a perfect savage of himself and eaten a plateful of raw meat to express enjoyment of the repast but i would hear of no such immolation on the altar of friendship and we had a course of bacon instead there happening by good fortune to be cold bacon in the larder my poor little wife was in such affliction when she thought i should be annoyed and in such a state of joy when she found i was not that the discomfiture i had subdued very soon vanished and we passed a happy evening dora sitting with her arm on my chair while traddles and i discussed a glass of wine and taking every opportunity of whispering in my ear that it was good of me not to be a cruel cross old boy by and by she made tea for us which it was so pretty to see her do as if she was busying herself with a set of dolls tea-things that i was not particular about the quality of the beverage then traddles and i played a game or two of cribbage and dora singing to the guitar the while it seemed to me as if our courtship and marriage were a tender dream of mine and the night when i first listened to her voice were not yet over 
When Traddles went away, and I came back into the parlour from seeing him out, my wife planted her chair close to mine, and sat down by my side. "'I am very sorry,' she said. "'Will you try to teach me, Dodie?' "'I must teach myself first, Dora,' said I. "'I am as bad as you, love.' "'Ah, but you can learn,' she returned, "'and you are a clever, clever man.' "'Nonsense, Mouse,' said I. "'I wish,' resumed my wife, after a long silence, "'that I could have gone down into the country for a whole year, and lived with Agnes.' Her hands were clasped upon my shoulder, and her chin rested on them, and her blue eyes looked quietly into mine. "'Why so?' I asked. "'I think she might have improved me, and I think I might have learned from her,' said Dora. "'All in good time, my love. Agnes has had her father to take care of these many years, you should remember. Even when she was quite a child, she was the Agnes whom we know,' said I. "'Will you call me a name I want you to call me?' inquired Dora, without moving. "'What is it?' I asked with a smile. "'It's a stupid name,' she said, shaking her curls for a moment. "'Child-wife.' I laughingly asked my child-wife what her fancy was in desiring to be so called. She answered without moving, otherwise than as the arm I twined about her may have brought her blue eyes nearer to me. I don't mean, you silly fellow, that you should use the name instead of Dora. I only mean that you should think of me that way. When you are going to be angry with me, say to yourself, it's only my child-wife. When I am very disappointing, say, I knew a long time ago that she would make but a child-wife. When you miss what I should like to be, and I think can never be, say, Still my foolish child-wife loves me, for indeed I do. I had not been serious with her, having no idea until now that she was serious herself, but her affectionate nature was so happy in what I now said to her with my whole heart, that her face became a laughing one before her glittering eyes were dry. She was soon my child-wife, indeed, sitting down on the floor outside the Chinese house, ringing all the little bells one after another, to punish Jip for his recent bad behaviour, while Jip lay blinking in the doorway with his head out, even too lazy to be teased. This appeal of Dora's made a strong impression on me. I look back on the time I write of, I invoke the innocent figure that I dearly loved, to come out from the mists and shadows of the past, and turn its gentle head towards me once again. And I can still declare that this one little speech was constantly in my memory. I may not have used it to the best account, I was young and inexperienced, but I never turned a deaf ear to its artless pleading. Dora told me shortly afterwards that she was going to be a wonderful housekeeper. Accordingly, she polished the tablets, pointed the pencil, bought an immense account-book, carefully stitched up with a needle and thread all the leaves of the cookery-book which Jip had torn, and made quite a desperate little attempt to be good, as she called it. But the figures had the old obstinate propensity. They would not add up. When she had entered two or three laborious items in the account-book, Jip would walk over the page wagging his tail and smear them all out. Her own little right-hand middle finger got steeped to the very bone in ink, and I think that was the only decided result obtained. Sometimes of an evening, when I was at home and at work, for I wrote a good deal now, and was beginning in a small way to be known as a writer, I would lay down my pen and watch my child-wife trying to be good. 
first of all she would bring out the immense account-book and lay it down upon the table with a deep sigh then she would open it at the place where jip had made it illegible last night and call jip up to look at his misdeeds this would occasion a diversion in jip's favour and some inking of his nose perhaps as a penalty then she would tell jip to lie down on the table instantly like a lion which was one of his tricks though i cannot say the likeness was striking and if he were in an obedient humour he would obey then she would take up a pen and begin to write and find a hair in it then she would take up another pen and begin to write and find that it spluttered then she would take up another pen and begin to write and say in a low voice oh it's a talking pen and will disturb doady and then she would give it up as a bad job and put the account-book away after pretending to crush the lion with it or if she were in a very sedate and serious state of mind she would sit down with the tablets and a little basket of bills and other documents which looked more like curl-papers than anything else and endeavour to get some result out of them after severely comparing one with another and making entries on the tablets and blotting them out and counting on all the fingers of her left hand over and over again backwards and forwards she would be so vexed and discouraged and would look so unhappy that it gave me pain to see her bright face clouded and for me and i would go softly to her and say what's the matter dora dora would look up hopelessly and reply they won't come right they make my head ache so and they won't do anything i want then i would say now let us try together let me show you dora then i would commence a practical demonstration to which dora would pay profound attention perhaps for five minutes when she would begin to be dreadfully tired and would lighten the subject by curling my hair or trying the effect of my face with my shirt collar turned down if i tacitly checked this playfulness and persisted she would look so scared and disconsolate as she became more and more bewildered that the remembrance of her natural gaiety when i first strayed into her path and of her being my child-wife would come reproachfully upon me and i would lay the pencil down and call for the guitar i had a great deal of work to do and had many anxieties but the same considerations made me keep them to myself I am far from sure now that it was right to do this, but I did it for my child-wife's sake. I search my breast and I committed secrets, if I know them, without any reservation to this paper. The old unhappy loss or want of something had, I am conscious, some place in my heart, but not to the embitterment of my wife. When I walked alone in the fine weather and thought of the summer days when all the air had been filled with my boyish enchantment, I did miss something of the realisation of my dreams, but I thought it was a softened glory of the past, which nothing could have thrown upon the present time. I did feel sometimes, for a little while, that I could have wished my wife had been my counsellor, had had more character and purpose to sustain me and improve me by had been endowed with power to fill up the void which somewhere seemed to be about me. But I felt as if this were an unearthly consummation of my happiness, that never had been meant to be, and never could have been. I was a boyish husband as to years. I had known the softening influence of no other sorrows or experiences than those recorded in these leaves. If I did any wrong, as I may have done much, I did it in mistaken love, and in my want of wisdom. I write the exact truth it would avail me nothing to extenuate it now thus it was that i took upon myself the toils and cares of our life and had no partner in them 
we lived much as before in reference to our scrambling household arrangements but i had got used to those and dora i was pleased to see was seldom vexed now she was bright and cheerful in the old childish way and loved me dearly and was happy with her old trifles when the debates were heavy i mean as to length not quality for in the last respect they were not often otherwise and i went home late dora would never rest when she heard my footsteps but would always come downstairs to meet me when my evenings were unoccupied by the pursuit for which i had qualified myself with so much pains and i was engaged in writing at home she would sit quietly near me however late the hour and be so mute that i would often think she had dropped asleep but generally when i raised my head i saw her blue eyes looking at me with the quiet attention of which i have already spoken oh what a weary boy said dora one night when i met her eyes as i was shutting up my desk what a weary girl said i that's more to the purpose you must go to bed another time my love it's far too late for you no don't send me to bed pleaded dora coming to my side pray don't do that dora to my amazement she was sobbing on my neck not well my dear not happy yes quite well and very happy said dora but say you let me stop and see you write why what a sight for such bright eyes at midnight i replied are they bright though returned dora laughing i'm so glad they're bright little vanity said i but it was not vanity it was only harmless delight in my admiration i knew that very well before she told me so if you think them pretty say i may always stop and see you write said dora do you think them pretty very pretty then let me always stop and see you write i'm afraid that won't improve their brightness dora yes it will because you clever boy you'll not forget me then while you are full of silent fancies will you mind it if i say something very very silly more than usual inquired dora peeping over my shoulder into my face what wonderful thing is that said i please let me hold the pens said dora i want to have something to do with all those many hours when you are so industrious may i hold the pens the remembrance of her pretty joy when i said yes brings tears into my eyes the next time i sat down to write and regularly afterwards she sat in her old place with a spare bundle of pens at her side her triumph in this connection with my work and her delight when i wanted a new pen which i very often feigned to do suggested to me a new way of pleasing my child-wife i occasionally made a pretence of wanting a page or two of manuscript copied then dora was in her glory the preparation she made for this great work the apron she put on the bib she borrowed from the kitchen to keep off the ink the time she took the innumerable stoppages she made to have a laugh with jip as if he understood it all her conviction that her work was incomplete unless she signed her name at the end of it the way in which she would bring it to me like a school copy and then when i praised it clasp me round the neck are touching recollections to me simple as they might appear to other men she took possession of the keys soon after this and went jingling about the house with the whole bunch in a little basket tied to her slender waist i seldom found that the places to which they belonged were locked or that they were of any use except as a plaything for jip but dora was pleased and that pleased me she was quite satisfied that a good deal was affected by this make-believe of housekeeping and was as merry as if we had been keeping a baby-house for a joke so it went on 
Dora was hardly less affectionate to my aunt than to me, and often told her of the time when she was afraid she was a cross old thing. I never saw my aunt unbend more systematically to any one. She courted Jip, though Jip never responded, listened day after day to the guitar. I am afraid she had no taste for music. Never attacked the incapables, though the temptation must have been severe. Went wonderful distances on foot to purchase, as surprises, any trifles that she found Dora wanted, and never came in by the garden and missed her from the room, but that she would call out at the foot of the stairs, in a voice that sounded cheerfully all over the house, "'Where's Little Blossom?' End of chapter 44《Chapter forty five of David Copperfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty five. Mr. Dick fulfils my aunt's predictions. It was some time now since I had left the doctor. Living in his neighbourhood, I saw him frequently, and we all went to his house on two or three occasions to dinner or tea. The old soldier was in permanent quarters under the doctor's roof. She was exactly the same as ever, and the same immortal butterflies hovered over her cap. Like some other mothers whom I have known in the course of my life, Mrs. Markleham was far more fond of pleasure than her daughter was. She required a great deal of amusement, and, like a deep old soldier, pretended, in consulting her own inclinations, to be devoting herself to her child. The doctor's desire that Annie should be entertained was therefore particularly acceptable to this excellent parent, who expressed unqualified approval of his discretion. I have no doubt indeed that she probed the doctor's wound without knowing it, meaning nothing but a certain matured frivolity and selfishness, not always inseparable from full-blown years, I think she confirmed him in his fear that he was a constraint upon his young wife, and that there was no congeniality of feeling between them, by so strongly commending his design of lightening the load of her life. "'My dear soul,' she said to him one day when I was present, "'you know there is no doubt it would be a little pokey for Annie to be always shut up here. The doctor nodded his benevolent head. When she comes to her mother's age, said Mrs. Markleham, with a flourish of her fan, then it'll be another thing. You might put me into a jail with genteel society and a rubber, and I should never care to come out. But I'm not Annie, you know, and Annie is not her mother. Surely, surely, said the doctor. You are the best of creatures. No, I beg your pardon, for the doctor made a gesture of deprecation. I must say before your face, as I always say behind your back, you are the best of creatures. But of course you don't, now do you, enter into the same pursuits and fancies as Annie? No, said the doctor in a sorrowful tone. No, of course not, retorted the old soldier. Take your dictionary, for example. What a useful work a dictionary is, but what a necessary work. The meanings of words, without Dr. Johnson or somebody of that sort, we might have been at this present moment calling an Italian iron a bedstead. But we can't expect a dictionary, especially when it's making, to interest any, can we? The doctor shook his head. And that's why I so much approve, said Mrs. Markleham, tapping him on the shoulder with her shut-up fan, of your thoughtfulness. It shows that you don't expect, as many elderly people do expect, old heads on young shoulders. You have studied Annie's character, and you understand it. That's what I find so charming. 
even the calm and patient face of dr strong expressed some little sense of pain i thought under the infliction of these compliments therefore my dear doctor said the old soldier giving him several affectionate taps you may command me at all times and seasons now do understand that i am entirely at your service i am ready to go with annie to operas concerts exhibitions all kinds of places and you shall never find that i am tired duty my dear doctor before every consideration in the universe she was as good as her word she was one of those people who could bear a great deal of pleasure and she never flinched in her perseverance in the cause she seldom got hold of the newspaper which she settled herself down in the softest chair in the house to read through an eyeglass every day for two hours but she found out something that she was certain annie would like to see it was in vain for annie to protest that she was weary of such things her mother's remonstrance always was now my dear annie i am sure you know better and i must tell you my love that you are not making a proper return for the kindness of dr strong this was usually said in the doctor's presence and appeared to me to constitute annie's principal inducement for withdrawing her objections when she made annie but in general she resigned herself to her mother and went where the old soldier would it rarely happened now that mr malden accompanied them sometimes my aunt and dora were invited to do so and accepted the invitation sometimes dora only was asked the time had been when i should have been uneasy in her going but reflection on what had passed that former night in the doctor's study had made a change in my mistrust i believed that the doctor was right and i had no worse suspicions my aunt rubbed her nose sometimes when she happened to be alone with me and said she couldn't make it out she wished they were happier she didn't think our military friend so she always called the old soldier mended the matter at all my aunt further expressed her opinion that if our military friend would cut off those butterflies and give them to the chimney-sweepers for may-day it would look like the beginning of something sensible on her part but her abiding reliance was on mr dick that man had evidently an idea in his head she said and if he could only once pen it up into a corner which was his great difficulty he would distinguish himself in some extraordinary manner unconscious of this prediction mr dick continued to occupy precisely the same ground in reference to the doctor and mrs strong he seemed neither to advance nor to recede he appeared to have settled into his original foundation like a building and i must confess that my faith in his ever moving was not much greater than if he had been a building but one night when i had been married some months mr dick put his head into the parlour where i was writing alone dora having gone out with my aunt to take tea with the two little birds and said with a significant cough ahem you couldn't speak to me without inconveniencing yourself trotwood i'm afraid certainly mr dick said i come in trotwood said mr dick laying his finger on the side of his nose after he had shaken hands with me before i sit down i wish to make an observation you know your aunt a little i replied she's the most wonderful woman in the world sir after the delivery of this communication which he shot out of himself as if he were loaded with it mr dick sat down with greater gravity than usual and looked at me now boy said mr dick i am going to put a question to you as many as you please said i what do you consider me sir asked mr dick folding his arms a dear old friend said i thank you trotwood returned mr dick laughing and reaching across in high glee to shake hands with me but i mean boy resuming his gravity what do you consider me in this respect touching his forehead i was puzzled how to answer but he helped me with a word 
weak said mr dick well i replied dubiously rather so exactly cried mr dick who seemed quite enchanted by my reply that is trotwood where they took some of the trouble out of you know whose head and put it you know where there was a mr dick made his two hands revolve very fast about each other a great number of times and then brought them into collision and rolled them over and over one another to express confusion there was that sort of thing done to me somehow eh i nodded at him and he nodded back again in short boy said mr dick dropping his voice to a whisper i am simple i would have qualified that conclusion but he stopped me yes i am she pretends i am not she won't hear of it but i am i know i am if she hadn't stood my friend sir i should have been shut up and led a dismal life these many years but i'll provide for her i never spend the copying money i put it in a box i have made a will i'll leave it all to her and she shall be rich noble mr dick took out his pocket-handkerchief and wiped his eyes he then folded it up with great care pressed it smooth between his two hands put it back in his pocket and seemed to put my aunt away with it now you are a scholar trotwood said mr dick you are a fine scholar you know what a learned man what a great man the doctor is you know what honour he has always done me not proud in his wisdom humble humble condescending even to poor dick who is simple and knows nothing i have sent his name up on a scrap of paper to the kite along the string when it has been in the sky among the larks the kite has been glad to receive it sir and the sky has been brighter with it i delighted him by saying most heartily that the doctor was deserving of our best respect and highest esteem and his beautiful wife is a star said mr dick a shining star i have seen her shine sir but bringing his chair nearer and laying one hand upon my knee clouds sir, clouds i answered a solicitude which his face expressed by conveying the same expression into my own and shaking my head what clouds said mr dick he looked so wistfully into my face and was so anxious to understand that i took great pains to answer him slowly and distinctly as i might have entered on an explanation to a child there is some unfortunate division between them i replied some unhappy cause of separation a secret it may be inseparable from the discrepancy in their years it may have grown up out of almost nothing mr dick who had told off every sentence with a thoughtful nod paused when i had done and sat considering with his eyes upon my face and his hand upon my knee doctor not angry with her trotwood he said after some time no devoted to her then i have got it boy said mr dick the sudden exultation with which he slapped me on the knee and leaned back in his chair with his eyebrows lifted up as high as he could possibly lift them made me think him farther out of his wits than ever he became as suddenly grave again and leaning forward as before said first respectfully taking out his pocket-handkerchief as if it really did represent my aunt most wonderful woman in the world trotwood why has she done nothing to set things right too delicate and difficult a subject for such interference i replied fine scholar said mr dick touching me with his finger why has he done nothing for the same reason i returned then i have got it boy said mr dick and he stood up before me more exultingly than before nodding his head and striking himself repeatedly on the breast until one might have supposed that he had nearly nodded and struck all the breath out of his body a poor fellow with a craze sir 
said Mr. Dick, a simpleton, a weak-minded person, present company, you know, striking himself again, may do what wonderful people may not do. I'll bring them together, boy. I'll try. They'll not blame me. They'll not object to me. They'll not mind what I do, if it's wrong. I'm only Mr. Dick, and who minds Dick? Dick's nobody. Phew! He blew a slight contemptuous breath, as if he blew himself away. It was fortunate he had proceeded so far with his mystery, for we heard the coach stop at the little garden gate which brought my aunt and Dora home. "'Not a word, boy,' he pursued in a whisper. "'Leave all the blame with Dick, simple Dick, mad Dick. I have been thinking, sir, for some time that I was getting it. Now I have got it. After what you have said to me, I am sure I have got it. All right?' Not another word did Mr. Dick utter on the subject, but he made a very telegraph of himself for the next half-hour, to the great disturbance of my aunt's mind, to enjoin inviolable secrecy on me. To my surprise I heard no more about it for two or three weeks, though I was sufficiently interested in the result of his endeavours, descrying a strange gleam of good sense, I say nothing of good feeling, for that he always exhibited, in the conclusion to which he had come. At last I began to believe that, in the flighty and unsettled state of his mind, he had either forgotten his intention or abandoned it. One fair evening, when Dora was not inclined to go out, my aunt and I strolled up to the doctor's cottage. It was autumn, when there were no debates to vex the evening air, and I remember how the leaves smelt like our garden at Blunderstone as we trod them underfoot, and how the old unhappy feeling seemed to go by on the sighing wind. It was twilight when we reached the cottage. Mrs. Strong was just coming out of the garden, where Mr. Dick yet lingered, busy with his knife, helping the gardener to point some stakes. The doctor was engaged with somebody in his study, but a visitor would be gone directly, Mrs. Strong said, and begged us to remain to see him. We went into the drawing-room with her, and sat down by the darkening window. There was never any ceremony about the visits of such old friends and neighbours as we were. We had not sat there many minutes when Mrs. Markleham, who usually contrived to be in a fuss about something, came bustling in with her newspaper in her hand, and said, out of breath, oh, "'My goodness gracious, Annie, why didn't you tell me there was someone in the study?' "'My dear mamma," she quietly returned, "'how could I know that you desired the information?' "'Desired the information!' said Mrs. Markleham, sinking on the sofa. "'I never had such a turn in all my life!' "'Have you been to the study, then, mamma? asked Annie. "'Been to the study, my dear,' she returned emphatically. "'Indeed I have. I came upon the amiable creature, if you'll imagine my feelings, Miss Trotwood and David, in the act of making his will.' Her daughter looked round from the window quickly. "'In the act, my dear Annie,' repeated Mrs. Markleham, spreading the newspaper on her lap like a tablecloth, and patting her hands upon it, "'of making his last will and testament, the foresight and affection of the dear. I must tell you how it was. I really must, in justice to the darling, for he is nothing less, tell you how it was. Perhaps you know, Miss Trotwood, that there never is a candle lighted in this house, until one's eyes are literally falling out of one's head with being stretched to read the paper.' and there is not a chair in this house in which a paper can be what i call red except one in the study this took me to the study where i saw a light i opened the door in company with the doctor were two professional people evidently connected with the law and they were all three standing at the table the darling doctor pen in hand this simply expresses then said the doctor annie my love attend to the very words this simply expresses then gentlemen the confidence i have in mrs strong and gives her all unconditionally 
one of the professional people replied, and gives her all unconditionally. Upon that, with a natural feeling of a mother, I said, "'Good God! I beg your pardon!' fell over the doorstep and came away through the little back passage where the pantry is. Mrs. Strong opened the window and went out into the veranda, where she stood leaning against a pillar. "'But now isn't it, Miss Trotwood, isn't it, David, invigorating?' said Mrs. Markleham, mechanically following her with her eyes, to find a man at Dr. Strong's time of life with a strength of mind to do this kind of thing. It only shows how right I was. I said to Annie, when Dr. Strong paid a very flattering visit to myself, and made her the subject of a declaration and an offer, I said, My dear, there is no doubt whatever, in my opinion, with reference to a suitable provision for you, that Dr. Strong will do more than he binds himself to do. Here the bell rang, and we heard the sound of the visitors' feet as they went out. "'It's all over, no doubt,' said the old soldier, after listening. "'The dear creature has signed, sealed, and delivered, and his mind's at rest. Well, it may be. What a mind! Annie, my love, I am going to the study with my paper, for I am a poor creature without news. Miss Trotwood, David, pray, come and see the doctor.' I was conscious of Mr. Dix standing in the shadow of the room, shutting up his knife, when we accompanied her to the study and of my aunt's rubbing her nose violently by the way, as a mild vent for her intolerance of our military friend. But who got first to the study, or how Mrs. Markleham settled herself in a moment in her easy chair, or how my aunt and I came to be left together near the door, unless her eyes were quicker than mine, and she held me back, I have forgotten, if I ever knew. But this I know, that we saw the doctor before he saw us, standing at his table among the folio volumes in which he delighted, resting his head calmly on his hand that in the same moment we saw mrs strong glide in pale and trembling that mr dick supported her on his arm that he laid his other hand upon the doctor's arm causing him to look up with an abstracted air that as the doctor moved his head his wife dropped down on one knee at his feet and with her hands imploringly lifted fixed upon his face the memorable look i had never forgotten that at this sight Mrs. Markleham dropped the newspaper, and stared more like a figurehead intended for a ship called The Astonishment than anything else I can think of. The gentleness of the doctor's manner and surprise, the dignity that mingled with the supplicating attitude of his wife, the amiable concern of Mr. Dick, and the earnestness with which my aunt said to herself, "'That man mad!' triumphantly expressive of the misery from which she had saved him i see and hear rather than remember as i write about it doctor said mr dick what is it that's amiss look here annie cried the doctor not at my feet my dear yes she said i beg and pray that no one will leave the room oh my husband and father break this long silence let us both know what it is that has come between us Mrs. Markleham, by this time recovering the power of speech, and seeming to swell with family pride and motherly indignation, here exclaimed, "'Annie, get up immediately, and don't disgrace everybody belonging to you by humbling yourself like that, unless you wish to see me go out of my mind on the spot.' "'Mamma,' returned Annie, "'waste no words on me, for my appeal is to my husband, and even you are nothing here.' "'Nothing!' exclaimed Mrs. Markleham. Me, nothing. The child has taken leave of her senses. Please, get me a glass of water. I was too attentive to the doctor and his wife to give any heed to this request, and it made no impression on anybody else, so Mrs. Markleham panted, stared, and fanned herself. Annie, said the doctor, tenderly taking her in his hands, my dear, 
if any unavoidable change has come in the sequence of time upon our married life you are not to blame the fault is mine and only mine there is no change in my affection admiration and respect i wish to make you happy i truly love and honour you rise annie pray but she did not rise after looking at him for a little while she sank down closer to him laid her arm across his knee and dropping her head upon it said if i have any friend here who can speak one word for me or for my husband in this matter if i have any friend here who can give a voice to any suspicion that my heart has sometimes whispered to me if i have any friend here who honours my husband or has ever cared for me and has anything within his knowledge no matter what it is that may help to mediate between us i implore that friend to speak there was a profound silence after a few moments of painful hesitation i broke the silence mrs strong said i there is something within my knowledge which i have been earnestly entreated by dr strong to conceal and have concealed until to-night but i believe the time has come when it would be mistaken faith and delicacy to conceal it any longer and when your appeal absolves me from his injunction she turned her face towards me for a moment and i knew i was right i could not have resisted its entreaty if the assurance that it gave me had been any less convincing our future peace she said may be in your hands i trusted confidently to your not suppressing anything i know beforehand that nothing you or any one can tell me will show my husband's noble heart in any other light than one howsoever it may seem to you to touch me disregard that i will speak for myself before him and before god afterwards thus earnestly besought i made no reference to the doctor for his permission but without any other compromise of the truth than a little softening of the coarseness of uriah heep related plainly what had passed in that same room that night the staring of mrs markleham during the whole narration and the shrill sharp interjections with which she occasionally interrupted it defy description when i had finished annie remained for some few moments silent with her head bent down as i have described then she took the doctor's hand he was sitting in the same attitude as when we had entered the room and pressed it to her breast and kissed it mr dick softly raised her and she stood when she began to speak leaning on him and looking down upon her husband from whom she never turned her eyes all that has ever been in my mind since i was married she said in a low submissive tender voice i will lay bare before you i could not live and have one reservation knowing what i know now nay annie said the doctor mildly i have never doubted you my child there is no need there is no need my dear there is great need she answered in the same way that i should open my whole heart before the soul of generosity and truth whom year by year and day by day i have loved and venerated more and more as heaven knows really interrupted mrs markleham if i have any discretion at all which you haven't you marplot observed my aunt in an indignant whisper i must be permitted to observe that it cannot be requisite to enter into these details none but my husband can judge of that mamma said annie without removing her eyes from his face and he will hear me if i say anything to give you pain mamma forgive me i have borne pain first often and long myself upon my word gasped mrs markleham when i was very young said annie quite a little child my first associations with knowledge of any kind were inseparable from a patient friend and teacher the friend of my dead father who was always dear to me i can remember nothing that i know without remembering him he stored my mind with its first treasures and stamped his character upon them all 
they never could have been i think as good as they have been to me if i had taken them from any other hands makes her mother nothing exclaimed mrs markleham not so mamma said annie but i make him what he was i must do that as i grew up he occupied the same place still i was proud of his interest deeply fondly gratefully attached to him i looked up to him i can hardly describe how as a father as a guide as one whose praise was different from all other praise as one in whom i could have trusted and confided if i had doubted all the world you know mamma how young and inexperienced i was when you presented him before me of a sudden as a lover i have mentioned the fact fifty times at least to everybody here said mrs markleham then hold your tongue for the lord's sake and don't mention it any more muttered my aunt it was so great a change so great a loss i felt it at first said annie still preserving the same look and tone that i was agitated and distressed i was but a girl and when so great a change came in the character in which i had so long looked up to him i think i was sorry but nothing could have made him what he used to be again and i was proud that he should think me so worthy and we were married at st alphage canterbury observed mrs markleham confound the woman said my aunt she won't be quiet i never thought proceeded annie with a heightened colour of any worldly gain that my husband would bring me my young heart had no room in its homage for any such poor reference mamma forgive me when i say that it was you who first presented to my mind the thought that any one could wrong me and wrong him by such a cruel suspicion me cried mrs markleham ah you to be sure observed my aunt and you can't fan it away my military friend it was the first unhappiness of my new life said annie it was the first occasion of every unhappy moment i have known these moments have been more of late than i can count but not my generous husband not for the reason you suppose for in my heart there is not a thought a recollection or a hope that any power could separate from you she raised her eyes and clasped her hands and looked as beautiful and true i thought as any spirit the doctor looked on her henceforth as steadfastly as she on him mamma is blameless she went on of having ever urged you for herself and she is blameless in intention every way i am sure but when i saw how many importunate claims were pressed upon you in my name how you were traded on in my name how generous you were and how mr wickfield who had your welfare very much at heart resented it the first sense of my exposure to the mean suspicion that my tenderness was bought and sold to you of all men on earth fell upon me like unmerited disgrace in which i forced you to participate i cannot tell you what it was mamma cannot imagine what it was to have this dread and trouble always on my mind yet know in my own soul that on my marriage-day i crown the love and honour of my life a specimen of the thanks one gets cried mrs markleham in tears for taking care of one's family i wish i was a turk i wish you were with all my heart and in your native country said my aunt it was at that time that mamma was most solicitous about my cousin maldon i had liked him she spoke softly but without any hesitation very much we had been little lovers once if circumstances had not happened otherwise i might have come to persuade myself that i really loved him and might have married him and been most wretched there can be no disparity in marriage like unsuitability of mind and purpose i pondered on those words even while i was studiously attending to what followed as if they had some particular interest or some strange application that i could not divine there can be no disparity in marriage like unsuitability of mind and purpose no disparity in marriage like unsuitability of mind and purpose 
there is nothing said annie that we have in common i have long found that there is nothing if i were thankful to my husband for no more instead of for so much i should be thankful to him for having saved me from the first mistaken impulse of my undisciplined heart she stood quite still before the doctor and spoke with an earnestness that thrilled me yet her voice was just as quiet as before when he was waiting to be the object of your munificence so freely bestowed for my sake and when i was unhappy in the mercenary shape i was made to wear i thought it would have become him better to have worked his own way on i thought that if i had been he i would have tried to do it at the cost of almost any hardship but i thought no worse of him until the night of his departure for india that night i knew he had a false and thankless heart i saw a double meaning then in mr wickfield's scrutiny of me i perceived for the first time the dark suspicion that shadowed my life suspicion annie said the doctor no 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 in your mind there was none i know my husband she returned and when i came to you that night to lay down all my load of shame and grief and knew that i had to tell you that underneath your roof one of my own kindred to whom you had been a benefactor for the love of me had spoken to me words that should have found no utterance even if i had been the weak and mercenary wretch he taught me my mind revolted from the taint the very tale conveyed it died upon my lips and from that hour till now has never passed them mrs markleham with a short groan leaned back in her easy-chair and retired behind her fan as if she were never coming out any more i have never but in your presence interchanged a word with him from that time then only when it has been necessary for the avoidance of this explanation years have passed since he knew from me what his situation here was the kindness you have secretly done for his advancement and then disclosed to me for my surprise and pleasure have been you will believe but aggravations of the unhappiness and burden of my secret she sunk down gently at the doctor's feet though he did his utmost to prevent her and said looking up tearfully into his face do not speak to me yet let me say a little more right or wrong if this were to be done again i think i should do just the same you never can know what it was to be devoted to you with those old associations to find that any one could be so hard as to suppose that the truth of my heart was bartered away and to be surrounded by appearances confirming that belief i was very young and had no adviser between mamma and me in all relating to you there was a wide division if i shrunk into myself hiding the disrespect i had undergone it was because i honoured you so much and so much wished that you should honour me nanny my poor heart said the doctor my dear girl a little more a very few words more i used to think there were so many whom you might have married who would not have brought such charge and trouble on you i used to be afraid that i had better have remained your pupil and almost your child i used to fear that i was so unsuited to your learning and wisdom if all this made me shrink within myself as indeed it did when i had that to tell it was still because i honoured you so much and hoped that you might one day honour me that day has shone this long time annie said the doctor and can have but one long night my dear another word i afterwards meant steadfastly meant and purposed to myself to bear the whole weight of knowing the unworthiness of one to whom you have been so good 
and now a last word dearest and best of friends the cause of the late change in you which i have seen with so much pain and sorrow and have sometimes referred to my old apprehension at other times to lingering suppositions nearer to the truth has been made clear to-night and by an accident i have also come to know to-night the full measure of your noble trust in me even under that mistake I do not hope that any love and duty I may render in return will ever make me worthy of your priceless confidence. But with all this knowledge fresh upon me, I can lift my eyes to this dear face, revered as a father's, loved as a husband's, sacred to me in my childhood as a friend's, and solemnly declare that in my lightest thought I have never wronged you, never wavered in the love and the fidelity I owe you. She had her arms around the doctor's neck, and he leaned his head down over her, mingling his grey hair with her dark brown tresses. "'Oh, hold me to your heart, my husband. Never cast me out. Do not think or speak of disparity between us, for there is none, except in all my imperfections. Every succeeding year I have known this better, as I have esteemed you more and more. Oh, take me to your heart, my husband, for my love is founded on a rock, and it endures.' In the silence that ensued, my aunt walked gravely up to Mr. Dick, without at all hurrying herself, and gave him a hug and a sounding kiss. And it was very fortunate, with a view to his credit, that she did so, for I am confident that I detected him in that moment in the act of making preparations to stand on one leg as an appropriate expression of delight. "'You are a very remarkable man, Dick.' said my aunt, with an air of unqualified approbation, "'and never pretend to be anything else, for I know better.' With that my aunt pulled him by the sleeve and nodded to me, and we three stole quietly out of the room and came away. "'That's a settler for our military friend, at any rate,' said my aunt on the way home. "'I should sleep the better for that if there was nothing else to be glad of.' "'She was quite overcome, I am afraid,' said Mr. Dick, with great commiseration. "'What? Did you ever see a crocodile overcome?' inquired my aunt. "'I don't think I ever saw a crocodile,' returned Mr. Dick mildly. "'There never would have been anything the matter if it hadn't been for that old animal,' said my aunt, with strong emphasis. "'It's very much to be wished that some mothers would leave their daughters alone after marriage and not be so violently affectionate. They seem to think the only return that can be made for bringing an unfortunate young woman into the world—God bless my soul, as if she asked to be brought, or wanted to come—is full liberty to worry her out of it again. What are you thinking of, Trot?' I was thinking of all that had been said. My mind was still running on some of the expressions used. There can be no disparity in marriage like unsuitability of mind and purpose. The first mistaken impulse of an undisciplined heart. My love was founded on a rock. But we were at home, and the trodden leaves were lying underfoot, and the autumn wind was blowing. End of chapter 45What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.